This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Oh! 
or good morning to you, good day to you, good whatever to you, wherever you may be as you listen to this radio broadcast. This is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. Okay, we got a little bit of a late start tonight, uh, but a wonderful show by Debbie Johnson, as always. you got to love the Dr. Seuss stuff, and um, we're going to continue things tonight. i got a great show lined up for you, and hopefully uh, you all think the same thing. Uh, the program tonight, my guest, his name is Michael Tsarion, and uh, some of you may be familiar with him, some of you may not. He's written a book that's called Atlantis, Alien Visitation, and Genetic Manipulation, and uh, you can just sort of dwell on that for uh, about 50 minutes or so, and then hopefully things will become clearer after that. But anyway, I'm really excited to bring Michael Terry on to you live tonight. He's from Seattle. Actually, he's an Irishman and uh, uh, with the accent and all. And living in Seattle, though, right now, we'll be talking to him live in just a little while. Okay, so that's coming up. So thanks for the emails. Hello to everyone else listening over the web. If you're not in our listening area here, I appreciate everybody that's out there listening to the show after the fact. And as always, these programs are available uh, at the website for download or listen at MikeHagan.com, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com. So check it out. All right? Speaking of the website, actually, uh, thank you very much, as always, to my webmaster, Larry Norager, out there in California, doing just an amazing job. I get so many great and cool and encouraging comments these days about the about the website since we've changed things and uh, Larry is the guy that's uh, done all of that you know I provide the content but that's about it and he's done everything else and he's just an amazingly creative and imaginative uh, person and someone who I'm really fortunate to be involved with so thanks Larry as always uh, the, the comments coming in Fast and Furious about what a great job you are doing. And uh, speaking of that, uh, go over there to the web, MikeHagan.com, and check out the news section. Check out space weather. Actually, we're still working on space weather. We've got some some work to do on some of the sections of the website that aren't quite up to up to speed yet, but we're we're getting there. It's quite a project, actually. If you if you get in there and start. Uh, start, try to do some of this stuff yourself. It's actually amazing how much work is involved in, in keeping this stuff up to snuff. But anyway, uh, the news page, always cool. Some great stories that we'll talk about tonight. Music. I'm going to be featuring uh, music from, and you've heard some of this before, uh, but tonight we're going we're gonna to feature Henrique Palmgren, uh, whose musical project goes by the name of Leek, L-E-E-Q, and I've played some music from uh, Henrik over the last few months or whatever, but tonight we're going to feature Leek throughout the whole program. And if you like it, you can uh, you can download some of it. And the best way to do that is to go actually to Henrik's website, which is www.red-ice.net. That's redice.net, but there's a dash there in between the words, okay? A real talented guy who does a, uh, does a great job on the web as well. He does a really interesting, uh, has a really interesting website, 
and I always sneak over there to look at uh, the things that he's talking about on his website, and interestingly enough, all of a sudden got introduced to his music, which is also brilliant, I think. So anyway, we'll be featuring the music of Henrik Palmgren, um, Leek, L-E-E-Q, and he's a friend of mine who lives in Sweden, actually, and so we're doing the independent international thing for the rest of the evening tonight, okay? All right, thanks to uh, uh, Matt, who just called uh, from somewhere else in Missouri. I forget exactly where he was, but uh, uh, thanks for the call, and I hope you guys are listening and enjoy the program tonight. If anybody is uh, out of the area, though, and doesn't get a chance to listen, or something happens and the airwaves aren't reaching you or whatever, you can always get in touch with me via email, and if you miss the program, I will be glad to send you a copy of it via CD-ROM, or make sure you know how to get your own download via the web. And all of this stuff is available on the web at www.mikehagan.com. Just go to the archives page, and uh, you can download or listen to any of the previous programs that we've done over the last couple of years, okay? Okay, uh, let's see. Upcoming guests. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening over the next uh, few weeks up through the end of the year. Tonight, of course, Michael Sarion, and it's going to be an amazing conversation, so I hope you guys stick around for the next uh, couple hours. Next week, we're going to continue things with Graham Hancock, and for people who are uh, into the sort of stuff that we talk about in this program, that name is probably familiar to you, and Graham will be on the program, and I'm really excited about it. We'll be talking about his most recent book called Superstition. Uh, actually, I think it's called Supernatural, and... Uh, of course, Graham Hancock has a, a tremendous body of work uh, prior to this particular book, and he's uh, very knowledgeable in the ancient history of this planet and knows a whole lot about Egypt, knows a whole lot about much of the ancient, uh, many of the ancient cultures that have come before us uh, in the deep past, and we're going to have a fun time with uh, with Graham Hancock next week, okay? The following week is just after Christmas, and I'm going to play a piece that I recorded a couple weeks ago with my, my friend Joe Pierce, um, uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce, who, one of my mentors and a guy that I have learned so much from over the last 10 years, but somebody who is just an astounding and astonishing person and someone who I really really appreciate and love, and I hope you all get a chance to listen to the interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with Joseph Chilton Pierce. I'll play that, even though it's recorded. Um, you know, I like the live shows. There's no doubt about it. There's a certain energy or whatever that you get when you do uh, a live interview. But uh, Joe's in his mid-80s now and uh, lives on the East Coast, and midnight to 3 a.m. for him is just a little bit, uh, a little bit above the radar. So we did a uh, a recorded interview, and I'll air that on the 26th, and we'll talk about children and education and imagination, creativity, and lots of other stuff, uh, lots of other things that I talked about with Joseph Chilton Pierce. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. So here, you know, I've had a couple. I've had an amazing day, and I've actually had an amazing week, and. We're going to start the year off in the correct fashion. In fact, I can't imagine a better way to start the year off than we're going to do on January 2nd. 
and I should probably sort of bite my tongue because it hasn't been fully confirmed yet. I haven't gotten an email back, but we spoke this morning on the phone, and we've been going back and forth with email just to make just to sort of get the schedule right. But uh, Dennis McKenna, Doctor Dennis McKenna, uh, will be on the program on the second of January. Ninety-nine percent uh, probably a reliable statement there. And Dennis is the younger brother of another one of my mentors and gurus, Terrence McKenna. And many of you have heard me talk about Terrence on the program here. Uh, but Dennis doing wonderful work and up in Minneapolis, St. Paul in that area. But he will be out of the uh, continental U.S. and he'll be doing some work in Hawaii, teaching a couple classes out there, I guess, over the holidays. But we're going to talk with Dennis live from Hawaii on January 2nd, and a special guest that will be joining Dennis is Kathleen Harrison, and Kat Harrison is the former wife of Terrence McKenna. Uh, Kat and Terrence were married years ago, and she's doing tremendous work herself and lives and works on the islands of Hawaii, and uh, Dennis, Dr. Dennis McKenna will be teaching some classes out there with Kathleen. But anyway, we're going to bring both of them to you on January 2nd, live from Hawaii, Kathleen Harrison and Dr. Dennis McKenna. And I uh, could not be more thrilled about it. And like I say, a great way to start uh, great way to start the year off. So that's all coming up. Mark Pesky following that, the inventor of VRML, among many other things. Uh, Paul Stamets. Just got an email from Paul a couple days ago that he's willing to do the program. We haven't quite nailed it down, but... I'll tell you more about Paul in the future. But uh, he's one of the world's leading experts in one of my favorite subjects, mushrooms. So we'll have Paul on the air in just a few weeks probably too, okay? Lots of other things sort of in the uh, in the works and in the frying pan, and we'll just keep, uh, keep that going, okay? All right, so... Uh, the email address one more time, if I haven't given it out yet, actually. The email address is uh, orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. And you can send me an email with your thoughts and ideas and concerns and uh, anything else that you think uh, you'd like to tell me. I'd be glad to uh, to hear it. And to talk to you about it. So send an email at orbitradio at AOL.com. You can also, as I said uh, previously, make sure you check out the web at www.mikehagan.com. The phone number here in the studio is area code 573-874-5676. Feel free to give me a call when we take a break, which will be coming up in just a moment here. And, uh, well, we'll come back and talk about space weather. I've got some stories in the news that are interesting, and we'll talk about all that stuff coming up. All right, so stick around, and at the top of the hour, we've got Michael Sarian, the author of Atlantis, Alien Visitation, and Genetic Manipulation. And if you'd like to get a feel for what uh, what we'll be talking about, get on the web and go over there to, uh, what is Michael's website? It's actually Periscopes www.taroscopes, sort of like horoscopes, but it's Terascopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S.com, Terascopes.com. That's Michael's website. You can get there directly, or you can jump over there from uh, 
from the Mike Hagan website, and we've got him featured pretty prominently right there on the front page, so you can't miss it, okay? All right, so uh, let's see. Let's pick a song from Henrique and Leek, and we'll be hearing this music for the remainder of the evening. As I said, I'll be featuring uh, featuring Henrique's music uh, for the rest of the program tonight, and we will start out with a song called Surplus. This is from Indigo Child, my friend, Henrik Palmgren, you can check, uh, check him out at www.red-ice.com. Or is it redice.net? Yeah, redice.net, red-ice.net. And as I say, you'll hear more of this as the show progresses. So, like I said, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Leek. We'll be back in just a few minutes, and we'll talk more. Yeah. 
right there you have it. That's Henrik Palmgren and his musical project called Leak. That song was called Surplus, and I hope you liked it. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, let's do space weather here. As I mentioned earlier, uh, let me give another uh, quick mention of the guest tonight. His name is Michael Tsarion. And if you're interested in what we'll be talking about, jump onto the web, go over to MikeHagan.com or to Periscopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S dot com, and you can get a leg up. All right? Okay, space weather. Uh, let's see, the Geminids. The Geminid meteor shower is uh, going to be peaking over the next couple of days. And it's really sort of unfortunate because we have a full moon. I don't know if we can see it tonight, actually. I think it was pretty cloudy when I came in here tonight. But uh, the full moon will be sort of peaking over the next uh, next couple of days. And all of the light from the moon will sort of overshadow, so to speak, the geminid meteor shower. And the shower actually peaks on December 13th and 14th. And it is sort of bad timing, but uh, uh, there is one particular time, though, when you can see the shower in all of its glory, hopefully. If you get up, and I know this is going to be sort of uncivilized, but if you get up between about 4.30 a.m. and uh, before the sun rises, that hour or hour and a half or whatever between 4.30 and the time the sun rises, uh, both tomorrow morning and the following morning, the moon will still be below the horizon and uh, or just around at the horizon. So uh, the sky will be dark for about an hour, hour and a half. And if you wake up and if we have a clear sky, you may be lucky to see dozens of shooting stars and uh, wonderful things happening in the skies above your head. So uh, the Geminids peaking tomorrow and the following day and if you're up for some sky watching and some stargazing, or you're an insomniac or something like that, uh, get up at 4.30 a.m. sometime over the next couple of days and go outside and lay on your back. You might have to have a coat, uh, a coat on, put a scarf around your neck, and uh, check them out. All right? Okay, what's happening on the sun? A couple of uh, large sunspot areas. Designated 822 and 835 just sort of showed up over the eastern limb of the sun this weekend. They're rolling around our way, and as always, they potentially bring coronal mass ejections and solar flares and prominences and all this sort of thing. And the solar activity is likely to increase over the next week or so. I just had a phone call from a lovely young woman whose name was Beth. Uh, whose name was Beth and is Beth, I guess I should say. And I want to uh, make a mention about something that she brought up on our phone call. And she had a question about the northern lights, uh, the aurora borealis, and and, uh, uh, whether it's possible to ever witness the northern lights down here at these latitudes in Missouri. And yeah, actually it is. And it's happened before, certainly. Um, It's rare, there's no doubt about it, because... Uh, we are closer to the equator, and the closer you are to the equator, the more difficult it is uh, to uh, to experience these phenomena. Of course, they, they, uh, the northern lights, we call it the northern lights because uh, it happens around the poles, but there's also the southern lights, and uh, 
If you live in the southern hemisphere, the same phenomenon can be witnessed down there. Up in the north, we call it Aurora Borealis, and in the south, they call it Australis Borealis. But regardless, um, the northern or southern lights rarely reach the mid-latitudes, which is, which is basically where we live. But when there's extreme solar activity, and if you listen to this program or if you've been listening to it uh, at all, you realize that the sun uh, is not at all going through its typical cycles like it's supposed to. The sun was supposed to reach a uh, solar minimum just this year. And we have had uh, hell, I mean, six weeks ago or whatever, we had the most uh, outrageous activity on the sun that I've seen in maybe my life. There were, what was it, 17 or 18 X-class flares over the course of a week. Uh, So the sun is acting up, and whenever the sun gets really excited and uh, the solar wind picks up, depending on the uh, on the magnitude of that, the aurora borealis or the australis borealis will reach closer and closer toward the mid-latitudes, toward the equator. And yeah, it's happened here before, and it will happen again, no doubt about it. So if you uh, think that the northern lights aren't a possibility to be seen down here in Missouri, well, it's not, uh, it's not probable. It doesn't happen that often, but it's certainly possible, and it has happened in the past, and it happened in the year 2000, it happened actually in 2001, and it probably happened uh, this year. It's just um, a matter of, uh, of people being up and aware to look for it. You know, it's amazing to me how, how rarely people look up. We are sort of two-dimensional creatures. We, we walk around... Uh, and we're more concerned with the X, Y axes than we are with the Z axes. And we, we look left, right, in front, and behind, but we rarely look up. And, uh, well, let me tell you, when you do, sometimes you see things that you wouldn't expect. And oftentimes, those things are more, uh, more common and more frequent than you might ever imagine. It's just that nobody's ever looking. <laughs> so... So anyway, uh, thanks for the question to Beth, and thanks uh, for listening to the program, okay? All right, like I say, these sunspots are rolling around. We'll have to keep an eye on the sun and see what happens over the next week. Right now, still pretty quiet and nothing outrageous happening, okay? I'm going to mention really quickly that on December 15th, it's the 35th anniversary of Venera 7, and this was the Russian probe that landed on Venus. And that's right, I said 35th anniversary, so that means 1970. So 35 years ago, just think about this for a second. 35 years ago, the Russians landed, soft landed, a probe. And by soft land, I mean it was controlled. It wasn't a crash landing. They didn't just drive the thing into the planet. Um, They soft landed a probe on Venus. And this is sort of relevant to the conversation that we're going to have tonight in a strange sort of way because one of my big bitches... And one of my big problems with uh, with the space agency, with NASA, and with the space program in general, is why the hell haven't we done anything for the last 35 years? And there has to be an answer for that. And I don't think the answer is uh, forthcoming. We went to the moon in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. We landed, again, soft-landed probes on Mars and Venus 
uh, again in the mid-70s and the early 70s. Obviously, the Russians did it in 1970 with the Venera 7 probe. And technically speaking, there is no reason why we shouldn't be uh, gallivanting around the solar system by now. But something else is going on, and I'm not sure what it is, but for a long time I've wondered what has really stopped us. And that may come into, uh, into play with the conversation that I'm going to have with Michael Tsarian tonight. So I'm going to read one more story here really quickly, and it's one that makes my heart sing, actually. And then we're going to take another break. We'll come back, read a few more stories that I think are relevant to the show tonight. And uh, then we'll get things going at the top of the hour with Michael Sarian. But check this out. This is from NewScientist.com, all right? one of the premier science websites and magazines in the, uh, in the nation and on the planet, actually. Check this out. And I say this, and I'm going to be really clear about it. I'm 41 years old, all right? and this is, I think, the most important story to come out of physics since I've been alive, since I've been watching at least. Here's the first line. We don't know what we're talking about. That was Nobel laureate David Gross at the 23rd Solvay Conference in Physics in Brussels, Belgium. During his concluding remarks last Saturday, Dr. Gross was referring to string theory the attempt to unify the otherwise incompatible theories of relativity and quantum mechanics to provide a so-called theory of everything, the TOE. He compared the state of physics today to that during the first Solvay conference in 1911. Then, physicists were mystified by the discovery of radioactivity. The puzzling phenomenon threatened even the laws of conservation of mass and energy, and physicists had to wait for the theory of quantum mechanics to explain it. They were missing something absolutely fundamental, he said. We are missing perhaps something as profound as they were back then. I love it. All right? This is what's happening, okay? Nobody knows what's going on. All right? And that's always been the case the problem is people don't like to admit it right but we finally have some of the big-time scientists that are saying we don't know what's going on that there really is mystery mystery does exist you know and it always has it's just that we've been led to believe that it doesn't but it's out there and in fact the world and the universe is so mysterious that it's absolutely mind-boggling. And we have absolutely no clue of what's going on. Now, this article is short but sweet, but hats off, man, to Dr. David Gross for having the balls to say what he said at Solvay, because he's absolutely right. And uh, it is the first step to moving science forward to admit that we still have a lot to learn. And I really appreciate uh, what he's done. And it was a really small story, as I said, and it's, I'm sure it's not going to make much, uh, uh, much, much news you know, in the mainstream or anything like that. But trust me, at the pinnacles of science, at the antenna of science, a shudder in the force 
was felt. And I absolutely love it. And if you remember, uh, I had a, um, a guest on the program, it was last year sometime, uh, Dr. Carlos Castro. And Dr. Carlos Castro is a physicist who, who knows, quite frankly, that string theory was in trouble and that, and that we, we, we are at, at a loss to describe what's happening here. But he was one of the guys that, that got totally ridiculed, you know, uh, that's what happens, is that science uh, at the upper echelons becomes more like a priesthood. And it's not about searching for answers. It's not about exploring uh, and learning about the things that we have no idea about. Uh, it's about power and control and hierarchy and all the things that we see throughout the rest of our uh, collapsing society. But this is a, a, a ray of hope from Dr. Gross and I really appreciate it. And in fact, I got an email from Carlos uh, today that I'm going to read to you here. And then we'll take a break. Carlos says, uh, dear friends, and he sent this out to a whole bunch of people after I sent him the story. But he says, uh, dear friends, take a look at the message below my signature. And that's my message that he's referencing. It makes sense. It now makes sense why I and others like Tony Smith, Laurent Notel, and others who work on extended relativity theory, Clifford spaces, Clifford algebras, scale relativity, for example, why we are attacked so harshly by the establishment, and why our papers are censored. Aaron Bergman, when he was at Princeton, wrote that people in Princeton read Castro's paper for fun. Take a look at what David Gross had to admit about string theory. At least I suggested that an extended relativity theory may be operating in nature, and that could provide for the geometrical, physical foundations of string theory. Foundations that so far, nobody has a clue uh, to what string theory even is. In response to those who laughed in Princeton, in Spanish we say that those who laugh at the end laugh much better than those at the beginning. Carlos. So, good for you, Carlos. I appreciate it. And uh, it's guys like Carlos and men and women uh, who have refused to capitulate and lie down and uh, uh, and just take what's been handed to them and keep pushing the envelope. And that's what's required more now than ever, to push the envelope. Not just of physics, of everything. And uh, art, imagination, creativity. You know, that's the, those are the things that I'm always preaching. And uh, I think now's the time to push that stuff. So, anyway, great story coming out of physics, actually unbelievable. I couldn't believe it when I actually read it. I thought it was brilliant, and I couldn't believe they actually published it. But we will come back and talk more about some other things in just a minute. We're going to take one more break, and I've got a couple stories that are relevant to the conversation that we're going to have with Michael Tsarion at the top of the hour. And uh, So stick around. It's going to be a great program tonight, actually. I'm really excited about it. The music's great. I'm so into uh, Henrik's music, and we'll continue things right now with that. Uh, and this song is called... This cannot be true. How fitting. Mike Hagan, you're listening to Radio Orbit. I guarantee you quarantine. 
<laughs> All right, there you have it. Henrik Palmgren, once again, that's Leak on Radio Orbit. Wonderful, independent, international music coming from Sweden. And thanks, Henrik, for the wonderful music. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It is about, well, just about 12 minutes to the top of the hour, the midnight hour coming upon us here quickly. And I've got a few stories that I want to read that are relevant to the conversation uh, that's coming up with my guest at the top of the hour, Michael Tsarion. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, you can check out Michael's work at www.teroscope, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S.com, teroscopes.com. And you can also just go to MikeHagan.com, and uh, Michael's stuff is posted prominently on the front uh, page of my website, and you can jump over there. Uh, if you like as well. Okay? And, you know, I want to mention one more thing about that story that I just read before the top of the hour where where uh, uh, Nobel laureate David Gross talked about how string theory is a joke and that they have no idea what's really going on. And if I could add just one more thing, I think it's this. is that science, the tools of science, the tools of science have now opened the doors on the unimaginable. And many of them don't know what to do. The things that they're seeing uh, are making them bow down and uh, realize that they don't have it all figured out and that there really is tremendous mystery uh, still out there. In fact, that's what, uh, that's what life and, uh, and our world and the universe really is. It's one big giant mystery. And we're going to talk a lot about mystery tonight with Michael. So I just wanted to add that, okay? All right, so check this out here. Uh, I've got a couple stories. I think the first one I'll read here is about Wilhelm Reich. It says, uh, Wilhelm Reich, Eisenhower's secret ally against the aliens. This just came out today, and it's from Phenomena Magazine. And I'll read a bit of the article for you here. In one version of the story, President Dwight D. Eisenhower was flown to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio, on February 20th, 1954, to see the debris and dead bodies from the infamous UFO crash of 1947 at Roswell, New Mexico. Some versions weave a far more elaborate tale and maintain that Ike met with human-like aliens and began intergalactic peace talks with both them and several other extraterrestrial races. Ike reportedly struggled to deal with those alien presences in the remaining years of his presidency and retired in frustration in 1961, giving a gravely foreboding warning that the military-industrial complex he helped create would spin wildly out of control. Wow, that's an interesting statement, huh? 25 or 45 years in hindsight. What the hell has happened, huh? Um, or so the story goes among UFO enthusiasts and folklorists. Although the Eisenhower tale remains a well-known one within the history of the UFO puzzle, like many similar tales, no concrete proof has to date been forthcoming. Unlike many similar legends, however, there is a historical trail of data that does provide at least some provocative and intriguing corroboration for the stories concerning Ike and aliens. Strangely enough, Archival documentation and secondary historical sources come together in remarkable ways regarding President Eisenhower's connection to the UFO subject. Stranger still, those crossroads occur primarily in the biography and career of one of Sigmund Freud's most renowned protégés, Wilhelm Reich, who spent his final years in America chasing UFOs. 
ostensibly with Eisenhower's blessing and leaving behind an unusual and illuminating paper trail. Now, there's a whole lot more to this article, and if you don't know anything about Wilhelm Reich, he's uh, someone to look into, and his, uh, the end of his story is actually a really sad one. He died in an American prison, uh, destitute and uh, uh, beaten, but he was an amazing man with some amazing ideas and obviously involved uh, at the highest echelons of our country. So, uh, Wilhelm Reich, Dwight Eisenhower's secret ally, against the aliens. That may be something that Michael wants to comment later on. I don't know. Okay. Um, here's another one here. This came from uh, uh, astrobiology.net, astrobio.net. And uh, it's sort of a nanotechnology story, but it has sort of an interesting bent to it here. Check this out. Exploring caves with hopping microbots. This story just came out today. For the past several years, NASA has been encouraging scientists and engineers to think outside the box, to come up with ideas just this side of science fiction. Yeah, oh yeah, this is just me talking now. This is not part of the article, of course. Well, maybe they could have done something in the last 35 years then. Okay, anyway, uh, one of the projects that received funding earlier this year was a collaboration between Dr. Penelope Boston and Dr. Stephen Dubowski to develop hopping microbots capable of exploring hazardous terrain, including underground caverns and caves. If you want to travel to distant stars or find life on another world, it takes a bit of planning. That's why NASA has established NIAC and NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts. For the past several years, NASA has been encouraging scientists and engineers to think outside the box to come up with these ideas that are just outside of science fiction. Their hope is that some of these ideas will pan out and provide the agency with technologies it can use 20, 30, or 40 years down the road. Now, that's just BS, this whole 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Anybody that's talking in terms like that, you know, anybody that's talking 50 years down the road needs to go talk to Sigmund Freud or, or Wilhelm Reich or talk to their psychiatrist because I can't imagine the next 50 years of technological development and I don't know if you can, but I see the next few years uh, as opening uh, uh, opening our eyes to things that we can't even imagine now. And anybody that's talking about 20, 30, or 40 years down the road, in my opinion, that's just uh, it's either ignorance or, or, or miss and disinformation. And coming from NASA, that's pretty typical, actually. So anyway, they're, 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 they're trying to develop uh, these little critters that can go explore other worlds and explore our own world as well, which we know very little about, uh, as, it, as, it, as it turns out. All right, there's one more story here that I will finish with before we bring Michael on at the top of the hour here, and it has to do with Atlantis. And it's actually from August of 2004. It's a story that uh, my friend Kent Stedman and I uh, found uh, last year because uh, we, were, we were actually interested in this at the time, but I pulled it out today, and I'm just going to read a clip from, uh, from it here. And it says, Atlantis evidence found in Spain and Ireland. And this is from National Geographic, actually. An empire filled with riches, it was an awe-inspiring civilization that went out of the Straits of Gibraltar, the Pillars of Hercules, cliffs 
until it was defeated by the ancient Athenians and consumed by a cataclysmic natural disaster. In a single day and night, the island disappeared into the depths of the sea. So wrote the Greek philosopher Plato in 360 BC about the island he called Atlantis. The story is one of the most mysterious and enduring tales in human history. Uh, now, Michael Tsarian is going to have a lot to say about Atlantis, and I don't know if it's in Ireland or if it's in Spain or where it is or where it was. It seems like uh, every couple years we hear another story about Atlantis was found here. We heard Bimini. We hear outside of Cuba. I've heard the Azores, which is actually an interesting place. There's something strange going on down there at the Azores, I have a feeling. Uh, but uh, anyway, I uh, just thought I would... Uh, introduce the concept of Atlantis to everybody because it will be something that Michael and I talk about as we get things going, okay? All right, it's just a few minutes before the top of the hour. We'll take a quick break here, play a little bit of music from Henrik Palmgren and uh, his musical project, which is called Leek, L-E-E-Q, and you can check Henrik out at www.red-ice.net. And uh, Henrik actually uh, runs a wonderful website, this, uh, which is not particularly music-related, uh, redice.net. But he's also a fabulous musician. So uh, more from, uh, from Leek right now. And in three and a half minutes or so, we will have Michael Tsarian on the air. And we'll talk to him for the, uh, for the remainder of the program. And uh, we'll be discussing his book, Atlantis, Alien Visitation, and genetic manipulation. One more time, you can check him out at the web at terascopes.com, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S.com, or you can get there directly uh, from MikeHagan.com. All right, so we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Snow from Leak on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. I'll be back at you in just a few minutes.
Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. All right, my guest tonight, his name is Michael Tsarion. He was born in Ireland. He is an expert on the occult histories of Ireland, his native Ireland, I should add, uh, and America. He has deeply researched into the comparative mythologies of many of the world's uh, ancient and mysterious histories. He knows much about the Celtic and Druidic traditions, and he follows in the tradition, the revolutionary tradition, I might add, of Coman Beaumont, Ignatius Donnelly, Emmanuel Velikovsky, William Branley, Barbara Mariniak, and, uh, and many others. And we're going to let uh, Michael do a little bit more of his own uh, introduction here, but I'm very pleased to have him on the air with us tonight. And uh, without further delay, let's do it right now. Michael Tsarion, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Not at all. Uh, 
uh, Mike, it's nice to be with you, and especially uh, appreciate your introduction there where you went into the work of Wilhelm Reich because he certainly was, in fact, a major influence. And in my uh, DVDs and in my books, I definitely refer very heavily to him. Um, some of his research that was even less well-known hmm. you know, has a big impact on the future and what's been going on on this planet. He was actually into some very amazing stuff, much more than people are even aware of. And uh, people can definitely check him out online or go to my links page. There's several, you know, links regarding him, and his institute is still going. Um, there's um, a fellow by the name of Demio has kept his work alive and actually has written some fine books, you know, on top of what uh, Dr. Reich had already done in his own lifetime. Right, right, right. Well, I tell you what, let's do that real fast. Let's give out the website uh, one more time. Uh, Michael's information and much of what he's uh, involved with and researching can be found at www.terroscopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S.com. And as I said, you can get there directly from my website as well. But, uh, Michael, um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we start out with, uh, with you? Let's talk a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and how you got involved uh, with uh, uh, the, the topics that we're going to be talking about tonight, and it's uh, for most people they would consider this quite outrageous: Atlantis, alien visitation, and genetic manipulation. That's the name of your book, but it turns out uh, once we get into it, it apparently uh, uh, it's not as outrageous as it may seem. Well, no, it's not. And uh, my journey started back in Ireland, actually. You know, which is a, a very dysfunctional place in the sense that there's been a lot of violence and terrorism. You know, both in ancient times through the infiltration of, you know, the, the British government, and then up until more recent times, there's tremendous violence and injustice. And my job was, of course, not, I didn't want to get involved in that, because I actually saw from very early on, you know, I've had a very interesting uh, time looking into the occult agendas of all conflicts in certain countries. And in Ireland, it was clear to me, though it wasn't clear to anybody that I would ever talk to there, that this whole Catholic Protestant thing that was going on in the streets was itself orchestrated by higher powers, you know, mm-hmm. people don't understand this over there, they <clears throat> think it's a religious problem, and I, I researched it and found out, you know, that this is a higher, you know, cabal that is definitely fomenting the divide and rule policy here, so of course, not wanting to get involved in this lie, not wanting to take sides and, and be involved in that, I tended to study more of the ancient culture of Ireland, because mm-hmm. I, I describe Ireland in my work as a temple without walls. It is a very sacred land. Amazing things have gone on there because it was a refuge after the great cataclysms that did destroy Atlantis and many of the other continents of the pre-flood era. England and Ireland, Albion, that was where it was all happening. You see, whatever had fallen during Atlantis re-emerged on those islands. So, And, of course, that's been suppressed. The history of that has been suppressed. But by studying the myths and the legends, and not only that, but going out into the field and looking at these uh, megaliths, because Ireland is scattered uh, intensely with megaliths, many of them absolutely dumbfound. The specialists, the scientists can't make head or tail of these uh, incredible monuments which are aligned to constellations. And it was obvious, you know, that uh, something very amazing had been going on there. So taking all of this into consideration and then reading into the myths the Arthurian tradition of England, but also the more early myths of the Gaelic-Celtic times, I'm reading this, and, and suddenly I realize that this is history. This is not mythology. This is not fairy folk tales. We're being told about super weaponry. We're being told about uh, genetics. We're being told about the, the war of the gods. We're being told about visitation. We're being told about uh, different races in conflict with one another. We're, we've been talk, 
they're talking here about uh, cryogenics, you know, and all sorts mm. of uh, modern science. But of course, it's taken a while for us to ourselves get modernized so we can look back at these myths <laughs> and realize that, wait a minute, if you take away the veil of fairy folklore, you're reading something about ancient times that is real. The amazing super technologies were being used, magical and psychic powers being used, just like in the Indian culture where they're talking about UFOs and spaceships and Ramanas, right, the right, Indian right, record... Right. Yeah, the Irish record is talking about exactly the same thing, and the cosmological motifs are there. So, my starting point, you know, was of course, like anybody studying that, you you realize very quickly that what's coming down from the Orthodox enclaves is not only not the truth; it's total lies. The, the individuals out there are wanting us to not look deeper. They don't want us to look back into ancient times, and that was where my journey, you know, uh, started. And I'm so glad that. In this country, you've had the Michael Cremos, you know, and of course we have Graham Hancock and others, that there is a very healthy interest in this now because we're going to need to know what happened in the ancient times, in the ancient, if we're having any, if we have a hope to make sense of where we're going and our times that we're living in now. The secret is actually in the past. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Look, look backwards for the answer, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, as, as a matter of fact, uh, Graham uh, Hancock is going to be on the show next week. I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, he and I have exchanged books and had many talks. You know, it's, uh, I like his work, and I think his, his book, Talisman, actually, is, stands out in my mind. Um, I refer to that in my work. I think his book, Talisman, that he did, is really a must-read for everybody. I know Underworld is an excellent book as well, but I certainly recommend Talisman over that book because it has some very, very interesting information about the occult history of America and corroborates a great deal of uh, my work, you know, especially regarding the layouts of cities and the sacred geometry that has been employed in creating these uh, ritual centers, which are really cities that people mm. start getting into my work, they'll see that. But his book very much goes into all of that and the precise um, measurements that were involved in the design of certain cities, you know, in alignment to the stars. Right. Because this is a new thing that's happening right in front of our eyes, but we don't see it. You see, mm. We tend to be, you know, it's hidden in plain sight. So mm. we're blinded to something that we need to become aware of, of how we're living in the cities and and. There's a lot of very interesting occult things going on. Not that occult is necessarily bad. You have to be discriminative here. You know, but there is, there are certain powers, certain fraternities who are telling us something. They're teaching us something and they're explaining something to us. But it's not in words. Because these individuals do not communicate in words necessarily. They communicate in symbolism and, in, you know, in certain peripheral ways that we need to become very literate about right now. Okay. All right. Um... Well, uh, let's see. One of the first things that I sort of gleaned from your book was this idea that, uh, and we'll talk about Atlantis in a minute, uh, Atlantis in a minute, but I wanted to mention really quickly what came right off the bat was this idea that science and religion, uh, historically and today, right now, today, uh, we have looked to them for a long, long time as a solution to our problems, both science and religion. Uh, they, they, uh, both pretend to have an answer to the problem of evil, quite frankly. And yet it turns out that the discerning eye, and it doesn't even have to be that discerning, uh, can see that, that both science and religion have basically been responsible for the great majority of evil that seems to have happened yeah. on this planet. So uh, maybe you could just address that really quickly, and then, and then, then we'll move into the, uh, to the topic of Atlantis. Well, you're absolutely right. No question about that in my mind at all. And I mean, obviously, you know, growing up in Belfast, if anything in this world needed to teach anybody the fact of that, growing up on the streets of Belfast would completely show you. Because it's a small country. See, mm -hmm. here in the large continent, 
you know, one, it's a little bit foggy. People don't quite see the dynamics, you know, of politics and how it works. But in a tiny insular country like Ireland, where it's right in your face, the injustices, the machinations, the open, blatant, you know, manipulation and the psychic dictatorship, all of this is, is my reality. Now, I am not against anybody who is into religion. We're, we're, we're talking about here is not a critique of anyone who is religious, who has a religious mind, and who's looking to religion individually for their answers. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. You know, Christian, Jew, Muslim, that's fine. That's your own business. And no one should in- intervene in a person's connection with, you know, with, the spirit, with the spirit. I agree. What I'm talking about is the institutionalized, corrupt enclaves and bastions that have grown up professing to be, as you said, teachers of the light, guides of humanity, whereas in fact these people are genocidal, they're maniacal, they're psychopathic, and if we haven't understood that now, we better bloody well get understanding it because they're not going, uh, they're not going away anywhere. You know, they're getting worse, in fact. They're actually uh, they're accelerating because why did, I, why did I say that we have to look into the ancient times for the answers to now is because we are living a fulfillment of an edict or we, let's just say that we're in the end times or the end game hmm. of plans that were put down many thousands of years ago. That's where the connection is for people who maybe don't understand that connection. The connection is, I'm not that in myself, just, you know, okay, history is interesting, fantastic, but it's not just out of, you know, curiosity that I'm interested in ancient history. It is a absolute attentive and passionate interest in today, in today's world, that keeps me interested in history. Hmm. I find the connection. It's not because I got, you know prefer to study ancient history as a subject, it's because I found out that the incredible militaristic, economic, sociological mysteries, conundrums of our world today, the answers are to be found, seated in the roots of the past because we are living out something. We're living out an agenda that has taken thousands of years to unfold. So you're absolutely right. And the keepers of this truth, the keepers of these secrets, has been for the most part the powers behind government and certainly the hierarchy within religion. And their job is to lead our attention away from that. Their job is to create various forms of phantasmagoria in order to lead a person away from their rational center, mm. into their emotions, into their instincts, into their you know, more limbic responses right. based yeah. on people's fear, based on the fear of death and all of these things, which are quite normal. That's nothing wrong with that. But there's people who have used our questioning, used our need for mystery, used our fear uh, of the unknown and all of these things in order to lead us away into our lower mind and into our appetites and into our fear, you see, and out of reason, so that we are not perceiving ourselves or the world as it really is. I see. All right, well, let's, uh, let, let's move back into the past then, and let's talk about uh, Atlantis and at least uh, where a big part of the story apparently begins. Yes. Well, you see, what, and again, now I emphasize that Zacharias Titian is the expert in the Sumerian Babylonian tradition and so on and so forth. And that was a great archive that he released to the world, to the public, that first drew our attention to the fact that there was extraterrestrial involvement. There have been wars on this planet, and there have been, you know, gods uh, frequenting the Earth. Then we pick up with William Bramley and so on. Well, my work is exactly the same, except the archive that I go to is the Celtic legend. It's amazing to me. I always find it a source of amazement that it was me that went to this, because, uh, you know, it should have been done a long time ago, if you want my honest opinion about it. It's like it's been neglected. Again... Because it was put down as fairy folk tales, you know, old wives' tales, people didn't uh, pay it any mind. So my book is one of the first that has gone into the Celtic legend. I hope there will be more books on it by other people really deeply looking at these archetypes and messages within the Celtic legend. And they also speak about Atlantis. In fact, they actually speak about five continents. 
Mm. Uh, sank beneath the waves in a tremendous flood, just like the rest of the cultures of the world say. And they also talk about the survivors, and they also do talk about the fact that the reason why these continents fell was because of a atomic-type war, a war between factions. And uh, if you really go into detail, you find out, and of course if you cross-reference it with the other myths and legends and the... Uh, uh, the uh, scriptures, you also find that they are talking about the descent of alien beings that came to our planet somewhere about 50,000 years ago. Our planet was invaded by a certain type of alien. I mean, there's speculation that many alien beings have visited our planet, and I'm sure that that's true. Carl Sagan estimates, you know, that there's been thousands of visitations. So the one group that we're talking about is a specific group that were known and written about as the Watchers or the Nephilim or the Anakim. Mm and Zachariah Sitchin refers to them in the Sumerian records as the Anunnaki, and they are mentioned also in the Celtic legends. They say they were not many. They did come here, and they chose to interfere with the evolution of the ordinary, you know, our forefathers, our indigenous aboriginal people that were on this planet who are no more. These individuals uh, involved themselves in transgenic experimentation. That means they crossed their own DNA with the DNA of the indigenous earth people that they found here, and that incident or that uh, particular that uh, action that genetic hybridization in i have tracked back to be the root of the cause of what we call evil in the world i know that the word evil has a lot of religious connotations but just let's look at it in its pure sense what we call the injustice the sadism the cruelty this perennial problem that we have in the world whether it's inside our own minds in our daily life the immorality or the open criminality that we see in the world right up to the corporate level and beyond what on earth is this? Where did it come from? And of course, you're right. We've looked to religion to explain it. Have they explained it? Absolutely not. They're not only the biggest perpetrators of evil in the world, they have no answer for why man is the way he is. It's just something, oh, well, you know, you're going to work it out in time. Man is a sinner. He's fallen from heaven. You know, it's all going to be worked out all down the road. You turn to science, and they don't even deal with the moral question. So, you know, they're not really handing us any big answers there. Right. And my thesis, my work, which I must say has been very well um, received, goes into the explanation of this. And, and again, my source is the myths and legends. I'm not a scientist, but I have found the answer in the records and archives of our own ancestors who dealt with this in their own time, knew that it had come, and talked about it, and wrote about it, and, and said that man was a schizoid being, and almost date the incident that happened. Hmm. These factions, and I am absolutely convinced that tomorrow when we learn more about the DNA, we are going to discover this, that it is this, we have alien DNA, we have human DNA, every single human on the planet. There's not a single person living that doesn't have this mix. Of course, the mix is in different proportions right, right, depending right. on who you are. Right. Um, but this uh, splicing, this uh, schiz, I mean, this is schizophrenia right down on the biological level. So if a if, if person, you know, I'm, I say this a lot, I have a free web stream uh, on my website people can go to to hear a fuller account of this. There's a free web stream show right there on my website. And in that, I emphasize the point that we have a bipolar nature, a schizoid nature. The ancient legends are quite clear about this. And therefore, if an individual, you see, is pathological in this way, schizoid in this way, bipolar in this way, the individual then creates a society that is also schizogenic. The schizoid person creates a schizogenic society. Sure. The pathological person, they're bound to create, whether, they, whether they're trying to do it consciously or not, they will put leaders on the thrones of the world who are also equally pathogenic and schizoid. You see, and this is the connection between consciousness, between thinking, between the inner mind and the external world. 
you'd think that science would touch this, but they don't want to touch it. It's Wilhelm Reich. It's, it's Raymond mm. Reif. It's, it's the great scientists mm. like Walter Russell, mm. you know, who have looked to this amazing connection between consciousness, thinking, and, and society. Mm. There's a connection between microcosm and macrocosm. So we need to fundamentally now, in America, get savvy about the connections between psychic and physical energy so we understand how we are manifesting our own destiny here. Mm. It's not the destiny that our forefathers wanted for us. It's not the destiny that our children deserve. But we are manifesting something in daily life which is very, very toxic. And we have to now understand both the historical roots of that and what we can also do about it. All right. Well, this, uh, the whole idea of, of, of alien visitation, it, it, it sort of gets a bad rap and it's much maligned in, in, right. in, in the society and in the press everything else. But, uh, but there, there actually, there's actually quite a bit of uh, 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 scientific... and In fact, there are many prominent scientists many. actually in, in our past that have that have sort of uh, suggested that it's possible. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Uh, there are so many. I mean, it's, it's, the list is endless. Uh, I have an article on my website. If you go to the High Windows section, there's an um, article there on Atlantis, and I list all the scientists and their theories you know, that corroborate this. I mean, the father of rocketry, uh, Professor Oberth, we have Carl Sagan, and we have the, the, list, the list is endless. And mm -hmm. Some of them are extremely advanced people. But what we have to, you made a point there I want to go into, and that is that when it comes to subject matter like this, people are right to be skeptical because there's a tremendous amount of disinformation. Right. You know, my book actually started, as a lot of my work does, is to clear up disinformation. I didn't really know I was asserting any point. I just was trying to, you know, relate, relate what the Celtic legends are saying and clean up a lot of this disinformation. You talked earlier about the fact that, you know, every time somebody turns over a rock somewhere in the world, they're discovering Atlantis. It's like this perennial myth. Right. You know, I, I, that's what I'm talking about. It's, and, of course, everyone will um, want that type of fame, and that eclipses their reason and they're also their morality. Hmm. Uh, you know, so what happens is we have to understand that Atlantis may have been, in fact, the whole planet. Or, let's say, in my work, it's clear that Atlantis was a uh, specific place in the North Atlantic, and it was not a continent itself. This is the first piece of disinformation to clear up, and that is that Atlantis was itself not a continent. It okay. was on a continent. Right, right, and it goes back to these five different continents that yes. you were talking about. Okay. Right, and there's five others. But Atlantis was, it's like, it's like Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is on the continent of America. Well, that's the same thing. The city-state of Atlantis, which had you know, tentacles all over the world. I mean, you're talking about here uh, one of the first colonies, the first empires which had its estates and it had its bastions all over the world in exactly the same way that the British Empire, when it colonized Africa and India, you see, mm -hmm. it would build these beautiful colonial buildings. And what would happen if those colonial buildings, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years passed, and archaeologists came and dug these beautiful white, you know, buildings, colonial buildings, and then out in the middle of India or Ceylon and said, this is, this is obviously we've discovered London. <laughs> no, you have discovered a outpost of London, granted, yes. But, you know, you can't say you've discovered Atlantis. This is, unfortunately, you know, they get, uh, they start thinking about the grants that the Smithsonian are going to give them, and, and, and they get all, you know, uh, uh, happy about this. The first thing is that there, are, there was five continents, each of which probably had these uh, outposts. Atlantis certainly had them all over the world. So you must make a distinction between the Atlantis, the real place, and perhaps some of its outposts. Okay. So I believe that what uh, this wonderful... Um, name has escaped me right now, in Bolivia, that find that was made uh, out in Bolivia where there's incredible ruins were discovered there. I'm oh, convinced. Yeah, a huge terraform there, yeah. 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 Jim Allen yeah. discovered this. I yeah. am convinced that that is part of Lemuria, not Atlantis, but Lemuria. Interesting. That's a, yeah, so I'm, I'm very 
happy with some of the research, but, you know, again, people have to really split hairs here and realize that there was one Atlantis. It was situated in the north of the Atlantic Ocean, just like the ancient myths say, and anything else that's discovered is either an outpost or a remnant of one of the other five great continents at that time. Huh. Amazing. All right, well... Um... So who so how how did Atlantis come about? Who are the Nephilim? Uh, how, yeah. who, who are these people that supposedly uh, uh, started uh, that particular colony? Well, they're referred to in the Sumerian records as the Anunnaki, and they're referred to as the great giants, you know, or the Anokim. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, William Bramley refers to them as the Brotherhood of the Snake, and that term also is used in the Celtic legends, talking about the dragon people or the serpent race. And they came here and set up their headquarters on Atlantis because they had actually basically lost their way. To cut a long story short, and they needed to map the Earth, and they needed to map the skies, and they needed a citadel. They needed a central state, state to do that. And they set about also then building these great megalithic art, these uh, megalithic uh, sites that are dotted all over the world. Mm. They're responsible for building a lot of those because they were used for this purpose. Ah, okay. Well, hold on a second. Let's clarify this because I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, but I want to make it, make sure it's clear for the listener. The And some of the monolithic uh, uh, ruins and things that you're talking about were astronomical in nature. Right. In other words, they were trying to find out where they were. Right. In the, vast, yeah, the vast majority of them are obviously aligned to constellations, and it's always been a point of contention as to why that is. Well, if, you know, in my book I explain it very succinctly. Uh, you know, we can't do a full job here, but basically what had happened is that before this contingent of alien beings came here, a planet that was in our solar system, which was 15 times larger than our Earth, was destroyed. And the havoc that this created, you know, affected the planet. It affected the Earth. It affected Mars. A lot of what the uh, debris of the Van Allen belt, or excuse me, the asteroid belt, and many of the other anomalies that the planets are now known to have mm-hmm. were caused not by any some careering comet coming in, you know, like Zachariah Stitchkin and some of these other guys are saying. That's not true. This was actually from the destruction of a planet that was in our solar system already. And this caused so much upheaval that when the survivors came to our planet and and descended here, they were in confusion. The the whole of our solar system was in upheaval. There were tremendous cataclysms. This is recorded in the fossil record. It's coming to light now. And because of that, this is why there was a great energy was being expended to try and, uh, you know, locate where exactly they were. And that was why there was this fever, this fervor, this great passion to build a lot of these ancient monuments in order to make these calibrations of the rising and setting of celestial events and the tracking of the luminaries and so on and so forth. Okay. And that was one of the very interesting side issues of, of the coming of this of this race. All right. And and this particular planet that, that, that was destroyed was obviously a planet that was in the orbit of what we currently consider the asteroid belt yes, or whatever. The, the, the asteroid belt the remainder of it. It was between Jupiter and Mars, and it was called Tiamat. One of its names mm-hmm. was Tiamat, right. and it was an ocean planet 15 times larger. The ancient astrological myths speak about it. Um, the great Babylonian, Persian, and Indian books talk about it. There's references to it. It was known as the second sun, so it turns up a lot in folk tales and mythology. It was referred to as the second sun. It wasn't actually a sun, but it, it was just that, that was one of its names. Okay. And it is destroyed, and um, its debris... Its debris pouring into our Earth atmosphere was one of the one of the events that caused the enormous cataclysms oh. on our Earth about fifty thousand years ago. Okay, and it is sort of intuitive. I mean, even as a child, as I was learning science uh, and uh, uh, and learning about the solar system, when you when when you first hear about the asteroid belt, uh, it 
at least for me, the intuitive answer was, well, there was a planet there, right. <laughs> and it's now rubble, you know? Uh, it just seems like that that seems to be the most uh, most obvious answer. It is, really. And there's even scientific laws like Bode's Law that absolutely mm. prove that it was there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of the greatest you know, cover-ups, and there's been many in this world, probably one of the greatest, all-time biggest uh, you know, cover-ups is regarding our cosmos, regarding our, our ionosphere, and regarding the, the upper strata of our heavens, and also the solar system, the arrangement of the planets. Most of what we've been taught is completely bogus. You know, it's one of the biggest things that needs to be straightened out, and I'm glad to see that some, you know, writers are now starting to actually tell us the true story. But again, the myths and legends are, are trustworthy. Those turn out, after thousands of years, to be more trustworthy than the rubbish we're being told, you know, hmm. by NASA and everyone else. All right. Okay, look, uh, we are just approaching the bottom of the hour here, so why don't we take a quick break, okay? All right. And uh, we'll listen to a little bit more music from Sweden, my good friend Henrik Palmgren, who provided the music for this evening's conversation. So uh, we'll come back, all right, Michael? And we'll con uh, continue our conversation uh, with Michael Tsarion. And uh, you can uh, check him out on the web, as I said earlier, at www.terascopes.com. -E and you can jump over there from the Mike Hagan website as well. We will get right back to it in just a minute. In the meantime, this is more music from Leak. The song is called Rosetta Stone. It's from Enola Gay, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Back in just a few minutes with Michael Tsarian.
Rosetta Stone from Leek and Rik Palmgren International Independent Music from Sweden. And uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Michael Tsarion. We've been talking for the last half hour. We've got another hour and a half with Michael, and we're going to get right back into it right now. You still with me here, Michael? Absolutely, Mike. All right, good. Let's uh, give out uh, the website one more time, and I want to give out your phone number as well. The website for Michael's information is www.terroscopes.com, and you can also uh, get in touch with him if you're interested in his books, and he has a number of DVDs that are uh, just uh, finishing in production, I think, that will be out soon. And that number is area code 650-223-3300. Zero four, and I'll give that out again uh, as we move into the show. So, thanks, Mike. And the uh, DVDs are will be ready in January. They have their own website that people can browse. Uh, there's uh, it's not active yet to purchase, but uh, there's information there that people can look at. The website is called Origins and Oracles. That's the name of the series. Okay. There's going to be six DVDs in all. They're multi-length, very encyclopedic, and their website is again. <clears throat> OriginsandOracles.com. All right, great. And it's the word and, or is it the ampersand sign? The whole, I think it's the whole and, A and D. Okay, Origins you and can, Oracles. Yeah, you can get to it from the, from the main site, from the main Tyroscope site. All right, perfect. Okay, so uh, before the break, we've been talking about Atlantis and about uh, the... Uh, uh, the entities or the critters or the or or the uh the beings i guess that that colonized atlantis and according to your re- research they actually were aliens they were not from this planet they were uh, there's a long story to why they actually showed up here but uh we'll get into that another time uh, but the bottom line is they ended up here they were trying to find out where they were and uh and what what happens next then michael basically they said about you know these individuals um, really one of the slave race and hmm. you know being as advanced as they were I mean we have to consider you know, Mr. Spock and way beyond so it was nothing to these individuals to use genetics they were extremely proficient in it and it was sort of business as usual to them uh, to have um, subordinates to, okay. to, you know because they, they looked at themselves as gods and in our eyes they probably you know would have fit that pretty well because mm. of the skills that they had right. and wanting this particular slave race they created a species but they also were not that aware of the human side, even though they had done their research and they had corralled our forefathers and obviously had uh, diagnosed them and screened them. They weren't themselves, you know, 100% sure what was going to happen when you take this life form and cross your own DNA with it. Our particular planet and our particular ancestors were quite unusual beings and were very in tune spiritually. And the being that was made, the first progeny that was created, which I refer to as the sons of the serpent, okay. because we talk about their fathers being the serpent race. Right. The sons of the serpent were actually an extremely in tune and spiritually advanced race. Not only that, but they had the scientific and mental power of their forefathers, the, these creators. So they were quite unique. And one of the things that happened was that they were not too happy serving their masters. Hmm. There was many you know, dis- points of disagreement but the sons of the serpent basically decide that they're not into this gig of, you know, enslavement. So this basically. was the so this was the first sort of swing at the bat, though, right? Right. Okay, yep. and and let's clarify one other thing in the uh, in this particular region or place that we call Atlantis. These, uh, and I'm going to use people for lack of a better word, but these uh, these aliens mm-hmm. beings, they. Uh, 
they collected some samples. In other words, they. In other words, I guess the question people will ask is, how did they know uh, anything about us and our and our uh, physiology, our genetics, or anything? That they they actually brought uh, samples or or uh, um, something like that into their own realm where they could research and study us. Oh yeah, just like in exactly the same way as a genealogist and a, and a, and a, a biologist or a forensic scientist does today. Okay. You see, you know, the, the main difference was not so much biological; it was temperamental. Hmm. It was a spiritual difference. These individuals, being so advanced intellectually, they would may, they, in my estimation, they came from a planet in which spirit had been pretty much abnegated completely. These individuals were a scientific, advanced community. We can get an idea. If we look at the work of Gene Roddenberry, you see, and some of the other science fiction writers who have detailed possible planets like this, where there are individuals who are completely, you know, left brain, highly scientific type of uh, creatures, but the spirit is completely lacking. Connection to nature, hmm. all of this is absent. And this is the kind of beings that I believe that these Nephilim were. The very word Nephilim, in fact, means um, it, uh, it, the, um, sorry, the term serpent. In Hebrew, it comes from the word nahash, which happens to mean to find out or to, to analyze. Oh. So it definitely represents that these individuals were advanced, what we would call advanced scientists. Right, yeah, okay. just like in some hideous Planet of the Apes type of experimentation, they would have corralled our forefathers and pretty much quickly engaged in this kind of experimentation. Again, not completely knowing what the result was, but then one never does. Right. Now, the, crea yeah. the creature that they created... This is where the story really begins. I mean, the, the, the intervention and the, the visitation, I think, is important. You know, Eric von Daniken, many other scholars have gone into the fact that we definitely, 100%, have been, you know, visited. I think that's very, very interesting. But for me, the most interesting part is the creation of this particular, unique race of beings that I refer to in the book as Homo Atlantis, because okay. they were basically created on Atlantis. And this was the sons of the serpent. Yeah, or, or we can call them the sons of the serpent, exactly. And... These individuals, you see, were the, were the rebels. They rebelled. They did not want to continue supporting that type of status quo. And what they did was that they removed themselves from the precincts of Atlantis, from the Garden of Eden. They moved themselves oh. out of there and set up their own thriving civilization on another continent, which is now known as Lemuria, mm. and was known in ancient times as Oceana. It also has fallen beneath, you know, right. destroyed. But this thriving civilization is where the high cultures of spirit the cultures that reconnected to nature, the cultures and the people who may have wanted to condition out the alien genes, because once they're in you, you know, you just can't take them out again, right. but you could condition them out through time. You could raise a spiritual race of people involved in yoga, or involved in the purification of their being, a very spiritualized being. And I believe that many of the individuals that are still born in this world that contribute greatly to our culture and to our art may have that strain, may have the old human strain Coming out of the Lemurian mm. cultures, I believe it is the greats, the people that we call really great. And believe me, there have been such beings on this planet. Thank God. You know, uh, these are the lights of the world, the mm. Christ figures and the, and, the, and the great masters of art and literature and music. Mm. Yeah, I am looking... Out, yeah, uh -huh. that art, art, and art is a big part of this. Artists and creativity and imagination. Absolutely. And, and it's a very right-brained, and it comes from an ancestral place. And it's, it opens a different kind of reverence for the world. Mm. And I'm not negating science as well. There's also been fantastic science. When science is turned towards benefiting people, like it was with Wilhelm Reich and Dr. Raymond Reif, and you know, with individuals who are looking to heal mankind, uh, you know, and so forth and so on, that, then we have a science that matters. So obviously, this was a highly scientific culture as well. The Lemurians were no uh, backward people. They were also highly in tune, but they had the spiritual 
humanistic component that the Nephilim obviously did not have. Hmm. This schism, this rivalry, eventually led to the war that we talked about that I believe is the real reason for the um, pole shift, the polar shift. I analyze in the book, I have a chapter on the pole shift, and I, again, do not think of that as being a natural organic phenomena, not to say that maybe pole, you know, shifts of the axis haven't happened in the millions of years of our planet. Of course they have. But the most recent one to us, about 13,500 years ago, as, as many scholars are now discovering, this was actually man-made. This was not something that just happened to us. This was precipitated by a war of the gods that actually took place on our planet, is mentioned in all the myths and legends, and it came out of the rivalry of these two factions. Okay. Um, let me ask you really quickly, uh, before we get into this war, and, and you know, it, it, again, it, it just comes back, you know, the wars in the heavens, the wars of the gods. We've all heard these stories, and they're written in not just our own Western mythologies, but all around the world. There's no question about that. Right. We um, have it in our see, our body. Our own inner DNA is the, is the race memory, the scriptorium of these events. Because remember, in history, this is a blink of the eye. What we're huh. talking about 50,000 years ago and oh, 13,000 yeah. years ago, this is so recent in, in historical time that it is very much still in the unconscious I believe that a lot of our even psychological phobias and fears are connected to it. I believe a lot of our physiological uh, phobias are connected to this. I believe that we are traumatized. I believe that the human race, many of its existential and psychological problems, actually date from this particular instance, not just the polar shift and the cataclysms of the flood, but the genetic interference to our biology. My God, flood and pole shift is traumatic, but can you imagine having trauma take place on the most biological, the most inward... Mm microcosmic, microbiological levels, that yeah. alone caused our species to be the kind of schizoid and weird, you know, mm. good, evil, uh, crazy type of individuals that we are, this bizarre imbalance that we definitely know exists. Yeah, it and has a date, you know? Oh, okay. It has a date of birth. Okay, yeah, and, and, and again, that date, uh, it may seem like a long time uh, to us, but if we look at deep time and historical time, it really is, as you as you point out really clearly, it's just a flash. It's just a, right. it's just a click. But so somebody has been very careful to put ice ages in the way. Somebody has been very careful to say, oh, history just begins 7,000 years ago, guys. Mm. We don't want to be looking back, you know, beyond the ice ages. Why would we want to do that? We don't want to look. We're telling you that, you know, pyramids just pop out of the sky and basket weaving and mathematics and all sorts of amazing cultures, that all just appeared. Right. We don't need to look back more than 10, 11,000 years. Well, do you know why they don't want us to look back? For the very reasons that we're now starting to discover, that myself, Graham Hancock, Jordan Maxwell, a lot of other people are saying there is a history to this human race, that slowly, slowly, slowly the veil is coming down, the lies of the Royal Academy and the Royal Society and the Smithsonian and all these institutions who are dying, bending over backwards to make sure that we don't find out just mm. how remarkable... We really are, and what the reasons, you know, are for the condition that we now find ourselves in. It's a remarkable story that now needs to be told. All right, let me ask you one quick one about this. Uh, when I think 50,000, 30,000, plus or minus, these, these types of, uh, uh, of ages, I think back to my own, uh, you know, my, my reading of Darwin, for example, right? And I think mm -hmm. about, okay, how do, how do uh, Neanderthal man and Cro-Magnon, for example, come into play here? Because the, 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 there seems to be something really strange that even the straight uh, paleontologists and archaeologists tell you that something very strange happened back then. Well, absolutely. I mean, James Shreve, you know, um, Christopher Knight. We have uh, John Ball of Harvard. We've got uh, Gunther Rosenberg. 
you know, we've got the finest minds who work in the field of paleontology. We've got from Los Angeles Otto Binder and Max Flint, who wrote a fantastic book called Mankind, Child of the Stars. Hmm. They're not able to answer. Hundreds of years have gone by, decades. They've tried it. They've tried all the conventional malarkey in order to answer this question of who were the Neanderthals, how come suddenly the Cro-Magnon is so different. They've tried their best to answer it in a formulaic way, and it hasn't worked. So now a lot of these scholars have the guts and the bravery to say, okay, we got it wrong. You know, there are, there's trace minerals in our body that don't even belong on this planet, like molybdenum. Mm. You know, we have like something like 300 or 400 differences to primates, staggering differences between the human being and the primate. We know something utterly incredible happened with brain capacity, right, right, just right. in the simple change from, you know, Neanderthal. And, of course, now it's even openly admitted that everything that we've been told about Neanderthal is a pack of lies, the fact that they were, you know, witless and brainless and all of this. All of this has now been completely exposed as lies. My book goes heavily into this. The DVD that's coming out will deal with this in great detail. We have been sold a bill of goods, a whole set of lies regarding our ancestors. But now, luckily, some of these fine scholars like uh, Oxford and Cambridge, Ellen and Dallaire, who wrote a book called When the Earth Nearly Died, uh, my, my work draws heavily on their work. This is a fantastic book that should have caused worldwide debate. Or we have Richard Milton, hmm. scientific advisor to the uh, Observer newspaper and magazine in England, who wrote, right, a book right, called, right. he wrote a book called Shattering the Myths of Darwinism. You know, there's now scholars coming out that are completely trashing this lies that have been handed down to us that were quickly thrown together by the powers that be. They knew it was unsustainable. They knew it wouldn't work forever. But, you know, they had to handle something that would, would stop Victorian man as, as, as we started to get more interested in science as ordinary thinkers and ordinary men started to write and read and think, they knew they had to hand us down something quickly that would stymie any kind of investigation. But see, now we're in the, a different era. Now we're in a new millennium where we can, again, revisit all of this and discover. You know, Darwin was accurate in some areas. He had his own vision on the world. A lot of it was true. A lot of it is false. We need to look at all the information. We need to get our hands around all the information and before we make our judgment. You know, my work tends to do that as well. It, it goes right to the source. I, I don't have a single reference in any of my work that does not come from an insider, you see, or, or, or from, the, uh, from the corridors of power. It's all there from the latest researches and latest discoveries of incredible researchers are now discovering the mystery of who we are, and it is an unusual tale. It's not something that we probably would have thought about. Yeah, and, and Michael, I'll add that uh, the book, and I have it right in front of me here because I have most of my notes that are written in the back of it, but uh, the book itself uh, is about, well, it's, uh, it's over 440 pages long. It's 440 pages long. Uh, about two-thirds of that is documentation, uh, research, and uh, from where the first uh, section of the book comes from. In other words, it's heavily documented, heavily researched, and backed up by all of these, uh, all of these sources. Now, that's done for a reason. I was completely consciously done. Um, I thought this out because my spiel that's in the beginning is based on the Celtic legends, but I do not want... I am a person who does not want anyone to just take my word for it. Mm. That book was designed specifically so that there would be tremendous documentation because I know there's a lot of scientists who come to my talks and come to the lectures, who come to the conferences. There's a lot of skeptical people out there. So I said, okay, this book is not just going to assert a point of view. I'll say my bit, and then I'm going to add as much evidence as I can. 
you know, from objective sources so that people can get their, inf- you know, because what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to save individuals the 35 years, you see, or more of research that I've been able to do. Today, we're pushed, we're, we're you know, we don't have the time. Right. Americans tend not to read a lot, you know, and I, I, even, even if they did, how on earth can an individual in their own time pick up the slack and discover this incredible mystery that I've been studying since I was 13 years of age? <laughs> it's simply impossible. So my book was to say, okay, here is my story, here is the way I look at it, you know, I'll present that, and then I'm going to present you with the objective facts so that you can make up your mind. That is why that book is heavy with that, with the appendices. And I've been actually thanked for it by many people. Oh, yeah. They, I, you know, I, I was, I was uh, as I was reading, uh, I didn't, uh, I tend to not do that. I don't, I don't read ahead. I like to just, <laughs> I just like to stay where I'm at and move through a book. I don't read the end first. And, and, and when, I, when, when I got to about page 150 or so, I realized that your particular uh, uh, part of the book, or, or at least your, your particular prose, pretty much ended there, and then the appendices began, and right. then it, it actually, uh, it, the, I won't say it got more interesting, but it gets very, very uh, thorough, I guess is the word. So, because you, I'm, I'm glad that you said that, because you see, I realize that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Hmm. A lot of the people that I mentioned that in appendices have done work that is absolutely phenomenal. Right. I don't come from a scientific background, but a lot of these people did. So a lot of these people had to be whistleblowers. A lot of them had to turn coat. A lot of them had to, you know, jeopardize their standing. Not, not less the, the great people like Emmanuel Velikovsky. Oh my gosh! But others, we must thank these individuals who come from the academic world, because I am a free thinker. I've always been a free thinker, and I've written this book under my own uh, publishing. I've printed it myself so that because it is extremely controversial, mm. and therefore I had to have complete control over it. But at the same time, we have the Michael Cremos, you see, and the Graham Hancocks, and the Ellen and Delaire, and the individuals from within the academic, uh, uh, you know, the academia. We have these individuals now from that world who are corroborating what the freethinkers and the mavericks have been saying. This is a unique moment in history in which, you know, when I go to conferences, there's all my heroes. A lot of them are degreed. A lot of them are from universities, you know. A lot of them are authors. But at the same time, we also have the mavericks and the free thinkers and the individuals who just come right in off the street even. Right. It's a blending. It's the sitting down of all minds contemplating the mystery of humanity. We are no longer just imagining that the guys in the cassocks and the guys with, you know, who sit at the top echelons of power in these institutions of, of knowledge have all the facts anymore. Right. You know, we, people like yourself, radio stations who are, should be commended because in the world, it's not, it's not happening in the world. Only in certain countries do you have this yeah, I know. ability yeah. you see, to have this kind of open debate where we can admire the Wilhelm Reichs and the, the maverick individuals who were more fringe and who are now, we are understanding the incredible wisdom that they have given us. We can honor the academics for what they have done, but we also have to honor the free thinker, the individual who draws his own conclusions his mm. own way. That's what it's all about. And okay. my book tried to tend to, to uh, emulate that. All right. Okay. Well, let's get uh, let's get back to uh, to our friends, and I use that rhetorically. Yep. Uh, the Nephilim, and, right. and and again, this idea of, of of manipulation and creating a a slave race, and what they uh, uh, what was next? We we know that they they created this first group that was called the Sons of the Serpent, but that but they didn't stop there because apparently that didn't work out very well, and in fact right. that 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 led to something really nasty. So let's talk about that. This is why I was saying it's the most interesting part of the story because when the Lemurians leave and they go about their own business and both sides are monitoring each other, in the meantime, the Nephilim originally, they just go straight back to the drawing board. They go, well, look, okay, we made a mistake. 
what we did was, and this is the most fascinating thing, and it's not really been brought out correctly, the Nephilim watchers, these uh, alien, the original alien visitors, decide that the problem in their creation was that they didn't dumb them down, that they gave them the same level of intelligence that they themselves had. Hmm. So they said that in the Mark II progeny, <laughs> which we call the Adamic man, the mythologies are referring more to the, uh, these people as the Adams that we know, the Adams and Eves, they would be created in a state of dumbed down, intellectually dumbed downness, and the euphemism that's used in the Bible and in the scriptures for the state is naked. Hmm. It does not mean physical naked. It has never meant that. The clerics know exactly what it meant, but of course they were not going to tell that to the rest of us. The word, it, it really refers to a state of spiritual and intellectual nakedness, so that they would be the perfect servant. Now, hmm. there is actual documentation of this, by the way, in the form of a book in uh, Mexico, you know, because we know that the conquistadors get in there and they, uh, oh. you know, they absolutely devastated that culture. Yeah. But a couple of codices, that means ancient books of the Maya, existed. And I'm, uh, let me read you, Mike, one small passage from the book, The Popol Vuh. Yeah, The Popol Vuh, sure, yeah. the creation mythology of the Maya, yeah. Right. I have the quote in my book, and it's fascinating for those who've never heard it before. It says, let us make him who shall nourish and sustain us. What shall we do to be invoked, to be remembered in earth? We have tried with our first creatures, but we could not make them venerate us. So then, let us make, try to make obedient, respectful beings who shall nourish and sustain us. Now we understand two things. That is the reason. If that's an example of the captions that were in these ancient books, and I believe it was, no wonder that they were burned in their thousands. <laughs> the second thing we know is that this is unbelievable. Here we're not only told that the gods wanted slaves, in this simple short passage, we're told that the gods did want slaves, that they created a first race that wouldn't venerate them, and then they went ahead and said, we are now going to make a second group who will venerate us and will nourish and sustain us. This is echoed in other books as well. So that, to me, is incredible. <laughs> and the beings that they created, we are all descended from. And those beings are the Adams and the Eves that are spoken about in the Sumerian records and in the old proto-biblical scriptures. So, 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 Michael, Adam and Eve weren't individuals; they no. were races. Races, extremely important. Your great, your great master, freethinker Ignatius Donnelly, is the first one to bring this to light, um, along with Madame Blavatsky. That when you are thinking about Adam and Eve, or even when you're thinking about Jehovah and Elohim, absolutely make your own job easier. And do not think in the singular. If you mm. think in the singular, you're already down the wrong track. And they're absolutely right. Especially, like you said, in regards to the Adam and the Eve, it is not in individuals that we're talking about here. We're talking about a race, a group of beings that were created for the, first, for the specific purpose of serving. And they were excellent servants because, of course, they were in this state of nakedness. Mm. They were in this state of dumb-downness. I'd like, if we have time, to read another short passage because it's extremely important that your, you know, your uh, audience get a hold on what we're talking about here. This one comes from Plato, mm. and it is Zeus, the great god Zeus that we all know from mythology, talking about, again, the dastardly work of the gods, the fact that they have dumbed down and that they've split man. Now, this is from the ancient records. This is what it says. Zeus gathered the gods in council to express his concern that these unusual creatures would one day challenge their hegemony. He was loath to exterminate them with his thunderbolts, though, because there would be no one to bring the gods' offerings. He solved the problem by putting each creature into a trance and then splitting it down the middle. 
Upon awakening, each half only dim, dimly remembered what it had been prior to his mm. being cleft in two. Wow. Now, I didn't write that. That is there in the ancient records. It is one of many such captions. The Mahabhatra, the Puranas, the Rig Veda, the Norse Edda, they're full of this kind of thing. We have to find out. Look what this is saying. That man would be running around with his hair on fire for the rest of his incarnation, fighting, murdering, killing, mutilating himself and, and his fellows, right? Mm -hmm. In a state of complete inner confusion, in a, in a state of complete schizoid nature in his religion, in his spirituality, and in himself. And the gods are doing it because this is the way to control. Okay. Right. Amazing. All right. Well, that's a good place to take a break, I think, again. And we'll come back. And then let's talk about this, uh, this war that took place. Um, because that's another Absolutely. significant part, and then yeah. uh, and then then we'll move from there, and and we'll have to get into. Uh, obviously, we'll talk about technology and and how that all uh, plays into this thing as well, because right. that becomes extremely big, important. Right, the question right. Of technology is is fundamental. Okay, sounds good. So let's do that, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, Michael. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Uh, this is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. It's just about one o'clock. In the AM on uh, Tuesday morning, the 13th of December, my guest is Michael Tsarion. He's the author of many works, uh, lots of different things. This particular book that I have in my hand is called Atlantis, Alien Visitation and Genetic Manipulation. You can find information about Michael on the web at www.terascopes.com. -E you can also get there directly from my website. And uh, we'll come back and, uh, and talk more about uh, this fascinating and amazing and a little bit frightening for sure uh, topic that we're into uh, tonight with Michael. So stick around. We'll play a little bit more music right now from Henrik Palmgren from Sweden. And this song is called Twitching and Shifting. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. My guest is Michael Tsarion. Stick around.
Killer stuff from Henrique Palmgren. That's music from Leek, international independent music from Sweden. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's just after 1 o'clock. Right, let's get back to it here. My guest is Michael Terrion. And uh, we're in the midst of a fascinating conversation. And let's get right back to it, Michael. Uh, uh, where where are we? I'm 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 a little bit blown away after that music. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we got to get back and talk uh, uh, about this war, this conflagration that happened between the gods. Maybe we can uh, pick up with that. Right on, because that's again a key point that you know is in our mythology. We also need to understand that um, the the thing that precipitated that was the fact that the Lemurians had been keeping tabs on what their forefathers were doing because they had a suspicion that once they left the, the warlocks of Atlantis might go back to the drawing boards and create another race and Once again the, war, and again yeah. the Lemurians for people who just to be clear they were the first right. uh, attempt at the so-called sons of the serpent and they yep. and they pretty much took off and started their own thing and then and then the Atlanteans uh, went, went for round two right but the, the Lemurians were also keeping you know sort of watching the sea Okay. what might happen and when they found out that this race had been made and that they were dumbed down they had a predicament because you see don't mm. forget that they were genetic cousins now mm. to the Adamic race so it's like you knowing that you have got freedom you freed yourself from captivity but some of your family mm. you know your brothers and sisters your cousins are, are kept in captivity then you have a predicament or dilemma of what to do so right, right, right. Lemurians decided to send ambassadors into the garden into the precincts of Atlantis where these dumbed down Adams and Eves were in order to instruct them in the, of, of what the status quo was, and, and also to do more than that, to say, look, if you come with us, if you come with us to our continent, we will awaken you and we will, you know, help you and we will uh, change your biology and we will fix the problem. And this is the, the Adams and the Eves then get seduced away mm -hmm. from the garden. We don't think all of them did, but a, a vast contingent decided to also exodus. Okay. So they followed the Lemurians away out of the of the gardens of captivity onto Lemuria. And the, the wrath, the wrath of the, uh, the Nephilim, when they realized that their perfect servants had now taken a hike, this is what precipitated the all-out war, because hmm. they responded in war. Now, this is, remember, this is at the time before the pole shift, so they still had their weaponry, they still had their continents, they still had spacecraft. And that is why in all the mythologies of the world we talk about the aerial flights and the, the great cataclysms and the, and the war of the gods that, you know, superheated the atmosphere and boiled the oceans and all the Native American Indians. They talk about this. I have extensive information on this in the book. And this is where this all comes from. Now, the Lemurians responded in kind because they, weren't, they were not backward. They also were able to retaliate. So we have what basically could be described as an entire you know, global nuclear war taking mm. place on this planet, from which we are still reeling, by the way. The effect yeah, of yeah. that war precipitated what has been the, the latest pole shift. The ferocity of the war actually affected the Earth negatively, and the Earth wobbled on its axis, causing even more calamity. Mm. Yeah, and uh, just uh, if, if you would, mention really quick a little bit about the Indian uh, history, not the Native American Indian, but the the Indian from the things like the Mahabharata and the and the Vedic uh, writings, because there's absolutely amazing passages in in these particular books that talk about flying craft and 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 pretty much really clearly describe something like nuclear war. Well, 
I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I, it's, it's such a voluminous subject, and there's a lot of information in the book, but I definitely will refer to one uh, piece of information from those myths, which I find absolutely incredible, and that is that um, during the great battle known as the Mahabharata, for those who studied the Indian tradition, they know that there was a, a very similar war that, they say that the Mahabharata, the Trojan Wars, and the Great Gaelic Wars all happened simultaneously. Mm. They believe this. In the Mahabharata, the, the leading hero was a king called Arjuna, uh, the great Arjuna. And Arjuna was the king, but his charioteer was Lord Krishna. So the equivalent of the Christ in, 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 in Hinduism, the supreme deity, was tutor to the king and was also his charioteer, instructing him in, in the way that the world works and stuff. So in the Mahabharata and the Great War, Arjuna, being a noble king, he doesn't really, he's, he's apprehensive to fight the enemy, the dark side, because he says, I see a lot of my family over there. Mm. Okay, he, he's complaining, saying, you know, a lot of these people are known to me, their faces are known to me, these are people that, you know, are related to us. Now we have to go into battle, and because they're immoral and they've fallen to the dark side, we have to slay them. You know, it, it's terrible. And the, the message of the Christ figure, the message of Lord Krishna is, but do not fear to slay them because they are already dead. Hmm. Now, this is a very, very well-known and well-analyzed um, statement, and to me, it's, it's just, it puts the chills into you because there's many levels of interpretation. Is he just talking about moral uh, culpability, the fact that you know, these individuals have fallen so much to evil, to darkness, that that's the reason why they need to be eradicated at the end of times? Or is there something even more? Mm. Is he saying that because they're genetically hybridized, you know, that these are robotic individuals wow. who, come, who don't even have a soul? I mean, we've got some mm. serious questions here. Right, the, myths, right, right. the myths are just phenomenal. But you're absolutely right. And the, uh, the Mahabharata, you know, means the Great War. The, the books are full of it. The Ramayana, another very famous book um, you know, of ancient uh, Vedic, talks about, you know, iron thunderbolts that can kill hundreds of thousands of human beings that uh, if, if you go near them, that your fingernails and your hair would fall out. <laughs> There's quotes from kings um, in which they're telling you that the hostile warriors fell to earth like trees, that thousands and thousands. I mean, I have a quote right here. There's a quote from the Mahabharata I have in the book. It says, A single projectile charged with all the power of the universe, an incandescent column of smoke and fire, as bright as 10,000 suns, <laughs> from a shaft fatal as the rod of death, Endowed with the force of a thousand-eyed Indra's thunder, it was destructive to all living creatures. Hostile warriors fell to earth like trees burned down in a raging fire. You know, blist, uh, wow. a fire blistered the hills. They say that uh, people were hundreds of thousands of chariots were burned up. Uh, people would run and jump into the waters, and nothing would happen. The, the water would, would uh, boil. Mm. They talk about the birds just falling out of the air. There's amazing information coming out of these ancient scriptures. And do you know that? when the British government had the job, first of all, to translate these Vedic books, they left out <laughs> all of this uh, incredible information. on purpose. Figure. Yeah, because they mistranslated it on purpose because they didn't want you know, individuals to know right. what was going on. There's actually a... Um, finally, the um, truth came out because there was a Dr. Raj Haven, who was the head of Sanskrit, uh, head of Sanskrit at the University of Madras, and he has a quote, it's in the book, it says, 50 years, he says, of researching these ancient works convinces me that there are living beings on other planets and that they visited our Earth as far back as 4,000 years B.C. Wow. There's just a mass of fascinating information about flying machines, even fantastic science fiction weapons, 
that can be found in the translations of the Vedas, the Indian epics, and other Sanskrit texts. This is Dr. V. Rajhaven of the head of in Madras University. And just like we were saying earlier, the great academics are now totally open to this. But what does that tell us? How come then some other hand comes along and tries to suppress this information? See, we have a we have a campaign of suppression. This knowledge has been held back from the human race. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's it's not an accident, in other words. No, I mean, why if it, if it was uh, if it was uh, not of any importance and didn't happen and it was just a bunch of folk tales, why did they then keep it out of the Mahabharata? Why did they not keep it in these ancient legends? It had nothing to lose. <laughs> but no, suddenly we find out that the ice ages just go flying; they didn't exist. Now we find out that the Pleistocene epoch is concertinaed out of existence. Now we find that the fossil record is telling us things, you know, against ice age theory, mm. and we have to, we have to scrap. All of this thing. In the last 10 years, the science is in confirming every point that I make in the book yeah, is now yeah, confirmed yeah. by our official science, and that's a fact. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I, and, I, and I and I as we talked off the air, I read the whole thing, and uh, and I I was very I didn't find many holes. Uh, well, certainly, certainly there are questions. I mean, and don't get me wrong, uh, I, I, it's 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 impossible to know everything and all the details uh, because we are talking about the deep past, but. Uh, but certainly, this stuff comes together very clearly, it seems like. Right. And remember, this is not a single man's effort. This is the work oh, yeah. of a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I have, uh, you know, other researchers around the world send me a lot of information. Of course, I read, you know, what comes out. Uh, this is not just, a, you know, the brainchild of one person. Yeah. This is a, corrobor a corroboration. is a collaboration. It's a corroboration of people's work in the past, but it's an ongoing thing. You know, oh. I have my answers. I love the subject, I look into it, and tomorrow we'll have other people finding even more, you know, uh, aspects of this that suddenly yeah. comes out. We, every day there's something new, you know, a new anomaly that's throwing light. Right. And, and Michael, I will add, add one thing for people out there listening. As I read the book, uh, on a number of occasions, Michael qualifies things. He says, in my current state of understanding. Uh, in other words, he's not uh, married to the theories particularly either he's willing to learn and change as those things become apparent and that is so critical uh, in any uh, investigation of mystery we have to be willing uh, to move uh, where the new information leads us so i appreciate that you uh, that, that you qualified yourself like that as you were writing it michael well that's right you know to me it's very important to just present the information and not necessarily to assert a point of view to work it out together you know there's areas that are still a mystery to me of this great picture of course you know, um, I go in my forthcoming DVD, which is an accompaniment to the book. You know, I've gone into a lot of areas that I couldn't, you know, go into in the book because this is every day I'm finding out something new right. and something incredible. And Amazing. sometimes you find out something that uh, helps you to see more clearly something that was, you know, hidden to you before. Right. Okay, so after, okay, so we have this huge war, and it literally, uh, uh, this is where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is this where the the the, uh, the deluge, the flood uh, mythology comes from? No, the flood was before. The flood was with the destruction of the planet. Ah, Tiamat. yes, but Tiamat was destroyed. Yeah, correct. That was, okay. That was during when the Nephilim first came here. We have two events in very recent history that are fused together and appear to be one incident. And in fact, there were two. They were separated by a few a few thousand years, and they were two separate incidents. The one closest to us, about 13,500 years ago, was this pole shift. And now, as I said, the, the geologists, the free-thinking geologists, know for sure that there was this enormous cataclysm that took place. 
And the flood was, in my thinking, before that. Okay. All right. All right. So regardless, uh, there's there, there's tremendous devastation, yeah. and both sides are pretty much uh, uh, they, they 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 take tremendous damage. What yeah. happened? What happens after that? This is the point because the flood is one thing. Water coming down as horrific as that may be, and uh, you know it is pretty cataclysmic. But it's not the same thing as a pole shift. You know, okay. right. the Earth, yeah. Can, yeah. Earth can recover from a flood. We've had many of those down in the million years, but Earth pole shift. We're talking about such unimaginable devastation that you know millions of genera or, of animals are wiped out. And these, this is where the continents went. This is where the Atlantis, Lemuria, Beringia, Terrenia, and uh, Phanoscandia, these other islands that are now thought of as being mythological, they sank beneath the waves and vast numbers of both sides of the contingents. Both Lemuria was gone forever, Atlantis gone forever, handful of survivors on both sides. This is the reason why, you see, today we're not privy to all of this. We're not aware of it because this cataclysm did the damage. And in my researches, the most important conclusion to realize is that the technological hardware by which these people lived, mm-hmm. was, this is a fundamental it was mostly wiped out. They had some stuff left, but the, all, the ships, you know, their computers, their chambers, all of the technology, this, which was their lifeblood, their breath, it was destroyed. And now these individuals were basically put back into a primitive situation, no better than the people that were on this planet in the beginning. Now these advanced scientists discover themselves because of their own anger, because of their own misreading of the planet and how it would react. They're left in this tremendously devastated situation and we to this day are still are living with the consequences of what they decided to do next because yeah. in, rather than give up the ghost and rather than give up the individuals decide to literally manipulate the flow of history and push mankind forward to the point where they could build the technology that was lost to them so they're trying to rebuild their technology right. for 10,000 years so when you have the great pundits and the great art Activists like uh, Gene Roddenberry and others ask the question, which many of us have asked, why is it that our scientific and uh, technological you know, development is so far in advance of our spiritual and psychological oh, development? Yeah. It's a good question. It should be asked. But what's the answer? Is The answer is because something has been compelling us, something has been pushing us forward artificially that built the empires of blood out of Mesopotamia and the Middle East back about 10,000 years ago. This is where colonization started. This is where the empires that sunk their talons into the corners of the world to get the ore. Zachariah Sitchkin knows all about that. Mm. He, he definitely talks about the mining operations that went on. Many other scholars have realized that uh, the ancient gods seem to be hungry for gold and hungry for ore and mining. All over the world we find these mines. That's right, because in their mind, yes, it's lost, but they can move mankind forward so that we're inching, inching, inching towards our modern industrial age. So they're inching forward, you see, through time, up into the Silicon Age, the technical age. So as I, we said at the beginning of our program, we are now in the final days. We're almost in like the end game situation to a plan that was put down about 10,000 years at the beginning of history, basically. Mm. Now, now, what uh, the purpose of recreating the technology is it one of control or is it because they want to get the hell out of here? Yeah, it's necessity. Control is part of it, but it's a secondary concern. It's absolute necessity. I always use the uh, metaphor of your gunman in the frontier times of the, of the Old West. If that gunman is like a samurai without a sword, it's like a frontiersman without his weapon, without his, with his, without his sidearm, hmm. you feel totally naked. Right. Think of that technology that these people had. Think of, you know, that, the film Superman. What hmm. do they show us? 
a superman from another planet who has got unbelievable powers even as a young child. When he's initiated into who he is, what does he do? He flies into the north, look at the symbolism, the north, mm -hmm. up to Atlantis, into the precincts of ice, where he goes into his oracle, into his cave, which has what? Technical computers, right? Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Crystalline computers. Right. We're being told something in these movies. Well, if these computers and all of this technology is destroyed, you are not left with many choices. You can't get out and walk back to your you know, own star system. Mm. You need the spaceships. You need the technology. So our societies have been artificially, completely against the grain of our natural progress. And I, I just can't understand how people cannot see the truth of this. We have been hustled, moved forward, whipped, goaded. The whole planet has been subjugated by many empires, not only the British, but the Roman Empire before that, and the Babylonians before that, and the Sumerians before that, tribesmen, wars, chaos all over the planet, while these groups manipulated and moved individuals, you see, in order to be able to colonize the certain lands where they knew that the ores would be. Mm. Because you have to own that land, you have to have it, and you have to have the technology and the slaves to dig it up for you, then you've got to know what to do with it. This takes a vast amount of time, naturally, these individuals are dead and gone, but the bloodline of these individuals have kept the monarchs of the world, the, the hierarchs of the world, the technocrats of the world have kept this occult agenda. We see it as being the movement of technology, or we see it as being a, a political agenda, or a particular movement of kings and monarchs in the world. Yeah, because we're on the other side of the looking glass. This is an occult agenda that's manipulating these kinds of, of movements in history, and we have not been told that. Nobody will tell you that, but it is a fact and now the human race needs to understand that it has been used in an experiment, and we are going to be subject to the, to the rules of that experiment. The Silicon Revolution, the you know, computer, the Jim Allens and the, and the Microsofts of the world, they didn't just spring into operation overnight. They don't use occult symbolism in their corporate logos hmm. for nothing. Right, right. You know, there's, a, there's something going on before our eyes, and there's plenty of occult agendas going on behind what we call the technological uh, revival from the Industrial Revolution on, our forefathers have been kept in servitude like a slave race, a slave class. But the relentless so-called progress goes on. Yeah, but whose progress and for what? Right, right. You make a, you make a uh, you reference a wonderful quote in the book that says, uh, and I paraphrase, but it's something to the to the effect of, why is it that progress looks so much like destruction? Right. I think it's John Steinbeck said mm. that. I'm, I know I know the quote you're talking about. Many great writers, many great thinkers, it's absolutely on our minds. We've noticed it. But we see, if you're not given the answer, then you buy into the lie. You go, well, I guess that's just the way, the way we are. The world gets worse and worse and worse. Animals are dying. Children are suffering. Third world is still the third world, right? Mm. We're on the brink of ecocide, and nobody is telling, it can stop this mania. Well, it's not meant to be stopped. This thing has to move forward. Now we're moving into nanotechnology. Now we're moving into the manipulation, like you were saying you know, before our show. There's, there's an incredible emphasis on technology. Let's find out why. Let's find out what was happening in the mid Middle Ages in the Tudor dynasty with the Francis Bacons, you see, and the John Dees. There's a tremendous message of, of technology and warfare and, and the conquest of our Earth. Okay. Many of the ancient tribes talk about this, how they were visited, and the visitors wanted to know about the mines and the ores, you see, right, right, because right. it's essential for this group, this coterie. They did not expect this to happen. It's as big a shock to them as it would be to anyone. They did not expect that they would be you know, set back in this manner, okay. but they set about an incredible plan in order to you know, um, have their descendants vacate this planet again. Okay, so um, 
And this is, of course, why the bloodlines are so important. We mentioned Precisely. that. Precisely. So many people talk about the bloodlines, but never why they're so important. Right. Okay, we see that there's bloodlines. Fantastic, wonderful, great. Thanks for telling us. Excuse me. Question. Why? What's the point? The incredible need to keep dated records, to know every child that's born, you see, because mm. these are the individuals who will be working for them down the line. These are the individuals who will be party to the real story. Right, right, right. Amazing. You have to know about them, and you have to know where they're going to be positioned and sitting and, 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 and what control that they're going to wield. All very, right. very important. Okay. Um, before we got a couple more minutes here before we have to take a break. Let's. Uh, you mentioned John D., yeah. and, and uh, he is a, a pretty critical uh, character in this whole play. Something very special uh, happened with regard to him back in what I guess 15th, 16th century, something right. like that. And what, what, what was that exactly? And maybe you can explain why this thing is, uh, accelerates from there on. Well, because the children of the Nephilim, down in, in the, if you jump centuries forward in this great story, you come up to a, the most important time, at least in my work, I focus on the Tudor period of the Middle Ages, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Elizabethan mm-hmm. Renaissance era, because that's when this plan altered in many ways. John Dee was known in, in any history book, or you can look him up online. He was a famous astrologer. He was the astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I. His boss was really Queen Elizabeth I, because individuals around that time, like Sir Francis Bacon uh, and uh, Edward Kelly, and many of the other occultists, were put onto the job we just look back and think, oh, these wonderful quaint images of the court magician. And, you know, we have a very fake understanding of this that's been sold to us by the schools and by Hollywood. We don't understand that these individuals were powerfully intellectual beings mm. who had tremendous occult knowledge and tremendous scientific and technical knowledge, but that they worked for the, the kings and queens of the earth, not just the right. tutors, but right. the tutors were internationally connected to the Hanoverns, you see, and to the Habsburgs and right. to the Merovingians. Right. Right. And they needed experts to constantly work on this agenda of the technologies and the mathematics and the kind of uh, the um, acquisition of knowledge. So John Dee and Francis Bacon, these are two extremely important characters that I go into in the book. And in short, it was discovered about the 15th century, something amazing. And that was that the pursuers of the Nephilim, that means the Nephilim had to leave their own planet because they were being pursued, and that's how they got to our planet. The pursuers of the Nephilim had erected around our planet an etheric barrier. This is a high form of technology, but it also has other properties as well. An etheric barrier that might be referred to as the Stargate, the real Stargate. It's an enveloping shield that is like it sort of puts the Earth in a quarantine-type situation. Hmm. The Nephilim did not know it was there until they made the first basic prototypical ships again, and we know from William Bramley and from other people that they actually did have flying ships around about the 15th century. I know that comes across as a shock to most people, but believe me, the evidence is is there. It was when they then tried to use these ships and break out of Earth's ionosphere that they encountered this uh, stargate, which is the moon's orbit is the stargate. The the orbit and the movement of the moon is like the lodestone of this particular enveloping quarantine shield. And they realize now that, wait a minute, even if they were able to build and get back all the technology that they had, they can't get out of the earth anyway. Okay. So during the Tudor dynasty, there was a tremendous uh, flurry of, of, of activity all over the planet. The children of the Nephilim realized that they had a predicament that they probably couldn't solve. 
They were working hard on the technology bit. They were doing real well, as we know from looking at the works of Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, oh, yeah. the Renaissance was a very important time scientifically. But then they had this amazing setback, this revelation, and it came to them as a massive shock. So the John Dees of that era and the people that he worked with throughout Europe, all these famous occultists, they had to come up with some other plan in order to not only now continue with the technological advancement, but another piece of this was needed. How do you, where do you find the key to break through this stargate, this ethereal barrier that doesn't stop alien craft coming into our planet, right? So it's like a semi-permeable membrane. Beings can still fly into our atmosphere from outside, but no one with the alien Nephilim blood, with the DNA, can leave this planet. This hmm. is how the higher forces have dealt with this particular predicament of planet Earth. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, the two uh, things have run side by side now. The two uh, agendas of moving mankind forward in technological terms, but side by side with that is the other agenda that John Dee is basically the main man involved in, in looking to the... It was his job to find out how they could find the key to break out of the Stargate. And this uh, actually uh, presents for me an answer to a question that I've had for a long, long time, most of my life actually, since about 1969 when I was five years old and I saw uh, Neil Armstrong step out of the lander and, mm -hmm. and, and walk on the moon. Yeah. And since then, it's been 36 years, and I've been asking myself ever yeah. since, why have they done nothing else? Right, because they can't do anything else. See, the one answer to that, and it's a good question that you asked, and others have asked it too, and the, the answer cometh not. But the answer is, <laughs> well, uh, they're, 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 they're unhappy. That's as they far they as certainly would be doing it. I mean, you know as well as I do that if they could do it, they certainly would be doing it. Certainly, that's the so whole there must nature, be something yeah. that is stopping them from doing it, and that is known to them. They have tried to go to the moon, and in fact it's debatable even whether they've even done that. But huh, yeah. let's imagine for a moment that they have. Getting to the moon is fine, but you can't go beyond the moon. That is why no manned spacecraft has gone beyond it. That's why they're looking for these other critters that you talked about earlier to go out there. They may use androids. They're into, sort of, they're into cybernetics. They're into all right, sorts of, right, of, right. of methodologies to try and get some craft to go to Mars or beyond that that has, that has some life on it. They have not been able to do that because they have been in quarantine for many hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is another piece that we need to take on board. We always see in mythology the symbol of the coiling dragon mm. around the earth or around a pearl of great price. We know that the, in astrology we have the dragon's head and the dragon's tail. Where does that come from? There are many mythologies in this world, especially in the occult tradition, that talk about the magician and his protective circle. You see, where does all these motifs come from? They come from someplace. The earth is in a, uh, the ancient mythologies talk about Cronus being chained to the pit. Right. In the Bible, they talk about the beast being chained to the pit for a season of time. Chained to the pit means literally in incarcerated, encapsulated, held down. They are trying to break this, and the, the, I mean, it's a, they're in a fever about it. Hmm. And we are living in the times, our times, with this incredible advancement in, in, in technology and in warfare, and believe me, SDI is still hot and going. Uh, we know this, that just because the Cold War has stopped, that has not made a dent in the expenditure of space research. There is a whole a neocon coterie out there who are busy uh, still dealing with satellites and space, you see. And there's, and, and, and there's been atomic blasts up there. Oh, yeah. you know, people people yeah. who read my book will know. In the DVD, we go into this thing about how there's even been nuclear detonations on the moon that we haven't been told about. <laughs> nuclear detonations in outer space. 
Yeah, on Mars, I think I've read about yeah. that as well. So. They're trying to cut a hole through there, you know. Uh, a lot of the, it's an amazing story that's yeah. happening, unfolding before our eyes. In fact, just in Israel, about two weeks ago, sonic booms were heard that the local scientists and the local people made meticulous researches to find out where those sonic booms that were happening week after week were coming from, and they made meticulous research to find out if they came from the Earth or from their local region. Absolutely not. They're stymied. It's, in the, it's on the web. It's in their newspapers. They cannot for the life of them discover where these loud sonic booms came from. Well, there's been sonic booms in Georgia. There's eyewitnesses all over the world mm. about these loud pulsations and flashes in the sky. Mexico knows all about it. You know, because harp technology, for instance, mm -hmm. microwave technology has been developed in order to beam a hole through the Stargate. Harp is a central. I've talked to Nick Bajic several times about mm -hmm. this, the, the mm -hmm. man who uncovered the harp sure. conspiracy. Nick Bajic Jr., sure. Uh, he doesn't buy into what I'm talking about at all, but he himself cannot answer why this thing is, you know, so many millions of volts more powerful than it needs to be. Amazing. You know, I believe I've got the answer, and I, I have it corroborated, and time will tell that this harp technology, microwave technology, is what created the hole in the ozone layer, the superheating of the ionosphere. One of the uh, unfortunate uh, symptoms of that was the ozone hole. But these individuals are trying to superheat the ionosphere in order to break through, and these great lights in the sky on the effects of doing this are being seen from certain parts of the world. And then when they, when they report it, people just say, what are you talking about? You know, there's no such thing happening, and just go back to sleep. You know, but we have the accounts. I have the reports. Amazing. From all over the world of these phenomena taking place. All right. Okay, Michael, let's uh, let, let's take a break here, and we'll come up and uh, come back, and we'll have about 20 minutes or so. I have a couple other questions for you, and I also want to talk about some of the conclusions and, and, and potential solutions for some right. of the things that we're, that we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, once, we, once we take this as a, uh, as a real phenomenon that's actually happening in, on our planet here. That's so. extremely important. Okay, cool. Let's do that. We'll be back in just a moment, actually about uh, four and a half minutes or so, with my guest, Michael Tsarion. You can find information, as I've said all this evening, about Michael at www.terroscopes.com, and there's a phone number for information and some of his materials as well. That number is 650-223-3304. We'll be back with Michael in just a minute. In the meantime... Another piece of music from Henrik Palmgren. This is Leak, and the name of the song appropriately is called Dark Side of the Moon.
That's one more from Henrique Palmgren. That's Leek. Uh, and the song is called Dark Side of the Moon. And you can find uh, lots of information about Henrique at his website, red-ice.net. And he uh, runs a fantastic website with lots of interesting information. And he's also a, an amazing musician. And you can get to all of his stuff there from redice.net. All right, Michael. Um, we are back, and we've got about 20 minutes uh, to finish things up here. So let me ask you uh, something that we haven't talked about. And uh, it has to do with nature and also with the feminine. And throughout this whole story, uh, it seems that there is just an absolute disdain for the feminine and a, and a complete separation from nature, which, which, well, it just doesn't seem natural go hand in hand the conquest that we've been talking about which was you know precipitated by the need for land and for for ores 
you know, it's, it's not women who are going to go out and do that kind of thing. It's the male traits, the male attributes that suddenly become needed. Hmm. So from the, first, from the very earliest times when our forefathers were genetically hybridized, that creature was a warlike, bloodthirsty being, because he had to be. He was forced and coerced to go out there and murder his, whoever he encountered in the planet, conquest, territorialism, the meat diet, you name it. Hmm. On Lemuria, of course, we know that this was unheard of. The whole concept of Lemuria, if you get into it, uh, Lemuria actually means the motherland of humanity. We know that women had a superior position there. We, in fact, know that that is the place where the great, uh, the great uh, goddess cults, for want of a better word, let's say the matriarchies, to be mm-hmm. scientific about it. It's from Lemuria that the matriarchal concept and cult comes, which means the women who were in close connection with nature, who would have been initiators in their own right, who would have held office spiritually, which, of course, you don't have on the male side, all the way down to modern times. Mm-hmm. Women are not permitted to hold any office. Uh, in, in regard to spirituality. Well, in Lemuria, that pattern was, which we see in the Celtic tradition and which we see in the Nordic tradition, we do see in the early Scots-Irish tradition, and we also see in the Native American Indian tradition where women have this initiatory role where they are keepers of the mysteries of being right. and, and so forth and so on. You see, we, we have this strain, but it's a strain that has not been very pleasant to the official uh, hierarchs. They don't like that, and they've risen up through 30,000 years to destroy and massacre women. And the reason in the book, I specifically deal with this topic, by the way, and remember I was telling you that um, when the sons of the serpent, that's the Lemurians, entered into the Garden of Eden in order to awaken the dumbed-down Adams and Eves? Yes. What I forgot to mention was that um, the Adams were not that interested, by the way. Hmm. The male side of the servants were not interested. It was the Eves that actually believed what the Lemurians were saying, and it was the Eves that precipitated the move out of mm. bondage and over to Lemuria. Mm. Two things came from this. One is that they became very, very closely associated with the Lemurian hierarchy, because the Lemurian hierarchy never forgot that it was the women who listened to them when they came in as agents of liberation. From the connection between the females and the high Lemurians, we have the Christ-like figures being born, those that we call immaculately conceived. Immaculately conceived is another cover word, it's another <laughs> euphemism for the child of a, of a uh, virgin queen. Right, so and another genetic thing here we're talking right, about. Right, it completely ties into this whole thing. The virgin queen has not been analyzed properly, it has not been explained properly, it's, there's a shoddy job has been done explaining what that really means by biblical scholars. It, it refers to something that goes way back before the Bible was ever conceived about the virgin queen and who that person is and the wisdom that they have. But the second thing, which is probably a, a little bit more interesting to women, that came from this era of their exodus, was this endless enmity that now would exist between the, the, ancestors, the descendants of the warlocks of Atlantis who would never, ever forgive the females specifically for this, Nubbing, you see? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that is why you read of Lilith being banished to the outer lands. We know that he, uh, that uh, Cain and Abel, one of those sons, it says in the Bible, it, if you read it, wasn't even Eve's son. I mean, I'm not making this up. In the Bible, it's clearly, if you read it with educated eyes, you will see that Cain is not even Eve's son. That We're talking about some other male, uh, excuse me, he's not Adam's son. There's another male figure involved, you see, with Eve in this. There's, there's mm. a whole cover-up in the book of Genesis about who the sons really are. Mm. But even leaving that aside, just focusing on the first woman was not Eve, but Lilith. 
Lilith is, is of course, considered to be a demoness. There's tremendous hatred towards her. We're never even told why. Suddenly this being is banished. Then she's banished. Next thing you know, the Lord is angry with Eve. We've still never understood why. The whole story is a concoction. The original documents, the original story of the Garden of Eden story have long been discovered by scholars, and there's not a, there's not a single word against a female in it. This is a later concoction. The whole original story coming out of Sumeria and coming out of Egypt is a very, very fine and mystical story, which has a lot of other meanings relating to the DNA, to the tree of life, which in ancient times was known to be connected to human genetics. Go into this in the book. But yes, you're right. Just on the, ver- on the basis of this um, incident, this rebellion of the females, the female has specifically never been forgiven, and that is why the female has been treated with such disdain and such suppression right up to modern times. Don't fall for any of this rubbish today about you know women having freedom and all this nonsense. Right, right, right. That's total bogus. The only freedom that they enjoy is when they emulate the male. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The male is already in, in servitude himself, and the woman who em- emulates what the male does is considered free. I mean, what kind of chaos in the mind, you know, in our world today we fall for? Yeah, it's actually really amazing to me. Actually, when 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 you look at. Uh uh, the corporate world or or the or the machinations of government and you f- and, and when you do find the rare female that 's in uh, uh, positions of power in those types of organizations sure. or institutions, she typically has to act like a man that 's how right. she gets there I have a quote in my book and, and then the DVD I have a DVD coming out that goes into this entire thing fifteen hours long uh, the divination and the goddess it 's called the DVD that will be done in uh, January, I have a quote in that that says, the women who once ruled the world are now content to be ruled by its destroyers. Hmm, amazing. You know, there's, neither party is free, wow. and yet one is trying to emulate the other. You know, and if we do not under, see, it's not just a female, it's the feminine, there's a difference. Right, you you right, rightly right. said feminine. I am much more interested in that. I'm not that interested in males and females. To, to me, there's just nothing but ignorance in this world right now. There's tremendous ignorance. There's so much ignorance, there's even ignorance that they're ignorant. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. What I am interested in, though, is what is femininity and what is masculinity. These are these are polarities that we have. Every human being has it. Men right. have their femininity and women have their masculinity. Mm. It is in this realm that the uh, that the writing has to be done. This it's in this inner realm that the the secrets of harmony are to be found. Not in society. Not in so, you know. Not in families. Not in in social settings. It's, it's mm. within the individual because there's a key there. In the end of the book, I go into the role of nature and talk about um, how the solution to the whole problem, the right. whole problem of the Nephilim well, and, and the earth is contained in the mystery of man and his connection to nature. Okay, well, well let's, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got 10 or 12 minutes or so, uh, so let's do that. I mean, if I, the question becomes, uh, you know, what is to be done? It's, you know, Tolstoy's question. If, yeah. we, if, if we are to take these... Uh, things as truth and recognize that, or 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 uh, uh, take it as truth that this is a real phenomenon that's happening on this planet. Then what is to be done? Well, there's several. Obviously, it's not just one thing. There's many things. The very first thing to do is to have all the knowledge, have to have the information that has been hidden from you. I try to do that with my book and my work, my DVD and website. It's just to present to the human race the knowledge that has been hidden from it, so that you will have a deep core racial connection to that knowledge because this is not something that just your reason you know is going to understand this is about your whole brain mm. this is information that has been hidden from you and your forefathers it, it's very important so there's there's there is of course many in one way you can say that the answers to this are as individual as people however there is some overarching 
uh, remedies, and we're going to need to know what they are for the for the for the next even just ten years. Because I agree with what you said. You can forget about hundred years and five hundred years and fifty years. That's all bogus. Right, right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this is coming down now. Baby. Well, the Maya don't the Maya talk about two thousand and twelve when there'll be amazing revelations whether mankind likes it or not? I totally believe in that. We already know that time is speeding up, in the sense that generationally things are just are accelerating. Well. I, in the end of the book, in the last chapter, which is called Time to Change the Road You're On, that's where I provide the solutions because I'm very solution-oriented. I don't just like looking at the problem. I'm a big believer that the 21st century is a time when we're going to be having these solutions. I agree with you. And, of course, it's not that we don't have solutions. We've had plenty. Wilhelm Reich has given us solutions. You know, there's, there's tremendous even scholars today in the world that are offering forth certain solutions. The problem is, though, that, you see, this, what everyone wants is they want a customized solution for their little group. You have to have the Christian solution, no. You have to have the Jewish solution, no. You have to have the atheist solution, no. The scientists want their solution. See, nobody's sitting around the table. They all have their own solutions, but they're useless because they're all different calibers for the wrong gun. Mm. So what, what use is that? You've got to step back, and you've got to see the overarching solution to which everybody, by simple membership of the human race, can buy into. So that it doesn't matter what their division is or how they cut themselves down the middle, you see, or how they divide themselves or how they slice themselves, what is the common denominator that all people can say, yes, this is a common denominator. This is the fundamental principle upon which it rests. And to me, you know something? That is the earth. It doesn't mean I'm a pagan or I'm a Wiccan or any of that. I'm not. I have just simply worked out with normal common sense that the fundamental principle upon which is the stalemate of everything, you know, it's, it's the bottom line, is the earth itself. Yes, is... Because ultimately before we, the human race, felt the effects of some incoming virus, like what I describe as this Nephilim coming in, I liken it to a pathogenic force invading a uh, healthy cell. Okay. The earth itself felt the consequences. Has mm. not the earth been raped and mutilated, you see, yes. and, 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 and eviscerated? Mm. <laughs> Listen, way more than the effects on the human race no has been to the earth itself. And this earth is a living, intelligent thing that not only has it been hard done by, but it has the solution. We, I describe in the last chapter of the book, the human race, or at least the human race that's turned on, that has some sanity left, we are like the lymphocytes. If you go, if you have mm, a disease... The immune system. Yes, exactly, because look at, it, look at it individually. This is very easy to understand, nothing complicated at all. If you are sick, then there are two modalities, two polarities that we know in this world. There's the allopathic system and the homeopathic system. That means that you can either go to a Western doctor who will slash, burn, and cut, <laughs> until you're cured and then we have the homeopath and the, what is the advice of the homeopath the ho advice of the homeopath is always 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 the same you brought this disease about yourself that's the first thing he said it's not some invading thing you see mm. you, you, you are the culture that it came to because you're being challenged and then there's, there's something incredibly karmic in that that we manufacture the monster in our midst that we need in order to grow and develop it's a highly spiritual Subject matter, we don't have the time to go into it now. But the second thing that the homeopath will tell you after he's done his diagnosis is he will say that your remedy of getting cured is in strengthening your own immune system, mm -hmm. period. This is exactly the logic that I use in, in regards to the Nephilim and the uh, macro-cosmic problem that we have with these pathogenic virus-type individuals that now frequent this planet and, and have no, no, no rights here. As far as I'm concerned, these are illegal immigrants to our planet. They have violated the sovereignty of our earth. They have committed untold molestation to our earth to which they have no rights. 
And the citizens of the earth have now to rise up and excommunicate these individuals because they are, have no legal, sovereign, spiritual right to have done the horrors that they've done and perpetrated on the planet earth. And it is time for the brothers and the sisters of the earth to rise up of all colors and creeds and get these people by the scruff of the neck and deal with them under sovereignty, under law. Now, as I said, going back to the overarching theme, the earth has the answers. We are her lymphocytes, but we are not acting properly. The shamanic tradition of old, the Gaelic Druidic tradition used to know this. They used to know what to do to keep the earth healthy so that the earth takes care of its own problem. Hmm. See, we are not going to be able to take care of it. Just like Bruce Lee taught, you do not fight with the power you do not fight with the weapons that your enemy hands you. Right, and I mean, I'm reminded of the of in the Christian tradition, Christ himself said, uh, resist, resist not, not evil. evil. Or Buckminster Fuller said, if you want to change a system, invent a new system that replaces the old one. Mm. Right? There are different laws. Of course, the old way has been rushed in there with placards and, and mean well, but then you're fighting by the enemy's rules. You're fighting in the pigsty that they've created for you. That's why nothing has ever got done. There are different rules that I have looked into and present in the book because there is a way to deal with this pathogenic viral force that is operating in the world. They don't like the earth. They don't like the human race. They don't like the earth. They've never liked it here and they don't like it here. And there's a way to eradicate the problem if we know what we're doing. It's, a, it's an amazing secret. But the earth is involved in this. The earth is a living entity, a, a sort of an altar, if you will. It's a sort of like it's the ground zero that we all must be facing. The mystery is in the matrix of the earth. Hmm. Until we're all facing the lodestone, we're all just chattering about different things, you see. We have to focus on the table round. All the knights must be sitting at the table round. Hmm. All the lymphocytes, all the antibodies must be focused in the right direction for transformation to take place. Right. This is a new concept. Uh. It, won't, it won't come easy to a lot of people, but it's homeopathic as opposed to allopathic. We've tried the allopathic system you know, historically for many generations now, and it simply hasn't worked. We have to change our thinking and learn about the Earth's immune system and the psychic immune system. It takes us into a lot of very interesting fields of study. Yeah, and, you know, the the, uh, the metaphor of the round table is something that's very interesting as well because there's no head at the table and there's no hierarchy. Right. Hmm. It's a hierarchy. And, 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 as I think of it, the focus... Uh, of any individual at a round table, if they're looking forward, all of the focus comes together in the middle. Isn't the earth at round? It is. Isn't the universe circular? You see, we have some mysteries to... We used to know this stuff, but we now have to revisit it. Hmm. We have to reorganize our thinking from the hierarchical to the holarchic. It's not difficult, and we'll see immediate change. Once you have the right remedy, you will see immediate change. But it often means that people are going to have to put some of their partisan you know, um, differences aside... Because the human family is being molested. So yeah, we need yeah, to act yeah. as a one, you know, force in order to, now I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I'm not, uh, a person who is deluded. I know that most of the human race is already too far gone. Hmm. Don't get me wrong. I know that if, if a lot of the human race could care less about any of this. So I'm also not looking, by the way, it seems like a paradox, but I'm not looking to all of the people you see, of the world to wake up and get it. That's not going to happen. Right, it doesn't take everyone. No, because, and nature doesn't need that. When I'm only talking about those who still have the sanity, the rationality, and the clarity left, and the will to power to know what to do, because this is vital to them, to understand the few secret keys that they need to, again, move in the right direction. You see, in the tribe, there's only one shaman. It's going to be the same story today. Mm. You have the mass, and they're always ignorant. They just believe in consensus, trance, and go about their merry way. And then within that, you have the shamanic class. 
those who have the ancestral wisdom, because it's not really you fighting. <laughs> your forefathers and their cries are in your blood. That's right. The people who died in misery under these tyrants, they are alive and well in your DNA, in your r racial memory, and you are fighting for them, even if you don't care about the person next door or you don't have that kind of you know, allegiance to your fellow brothers in the world. That's fine by me. Okay, no problem. Think about your own generations, your forefathers, your grandfathers who died in misery in caves and in mines and in factories and in the fields, wondering what on earth is going on, who are these parents that rule over us, and tomorrow maybe my four, my generation down the line will answer these great mysteries. Well, it has now fallen on our shoulders, you see, to answer these mysteries, and I believe that the answer is at hand. I see it in the audiences that I talk to and the emails and the, the phone calls I get and the people who are turned on to this information now, because the human race is a force to be reckoned with once it has the right tools and the right weaponry in order to do something right. Wow. Well, Michael, I don't know if, uh, if it can be said uh, any better than that. And uh, we are at three and a half minutes till 2 a.m. in the morning, and I think uh, uh, I always say it, but two hours goes by amazingly quickly when we're talking well, uh, about, we'll again. about these guys, types of things. You provided an amazing platform, you know, uh, to break the silence. You're like a megaphone to get these uh, incredible truths from ancient times out to the world. We couldn't see, any, anybody can have all the ideas. What happens if there's no microphone there? What happens if, <laughs> if the airwaves go dead? You see, then we have a problem. Yeah, so I, I, I thank you and compliment you for the work that you're doing, Mike. Well, I appreciate it. And, and, and I'll add one thing is that, that, that the, uh, the technology that we talked about a lot tonight is a double-edged sword. Right. And, and uh, we now, uh, if we decide to, can start to utilize the technology ourselves, and the Internet in particular, and some of the new uh, softwares and technologies that are giving you and me and anybody else out there the opportunity to do this and to share information and to find, uh, uh, to find their own truths. And so I really think that it's something that's, that's, uh, that's not as outlandish as it may sound. No, this technology was ours to begin with. We're just taking it back. They, don't, they didn't earn it in the first place. That's right. We're the no. ones that built it. I don't believe in anything uh, too much that Adolf Hitler said, but he said one thing that I really do agree with. He said, you, there is no such thing as treason against the treasonous. <laughs> Meaning you can't steal from a thief. Right, right. Get in there, take back what is ours, take back what is our right, not starting with the sovereignty of our own earth plane. We have to get clued into that understanding. And then we have to start using these tools like the great knowledge of the world and the technology of the world to build a better world for ourselves. It's like the real empire striking back. This, this stuff doesn't, it belonged to our ancestors. We, got, we were forced off the track of our natural evolution about 50,000 years ago. It's not impossible to get back in touch with it. It's not the first time that a small boy with a sling is able to destroy a giant or a small band of outlaws can overthrow an evil empire. It's been done in the past, and it will be done again. And I believe that America is very much involved in that type of fight. That's what it was created for. All righty. Well, there you have it. Uh, Michael, do me a favor. Stick around on the phone just for a moment, okay? Will do. And uh, to everybody else out there, uh, I hope you enjoyed the program tonight. An absolutely fascinating and wonderful conversation. And I thank Michael with uh, the fullness of my heart for spending the time with us tonight uh, and uh, two hours of his time, which I know is very valuable. And I'm going to finish things off uh, with, uh, with a song uh, by Leek that I've been playing all night. But I also want to read uh, one small piece from Michael's book. And it's a quote from one of the greatest humanitarians uh, of all time on this planet. His name was Percy Shelley. And this is what he said, among other things. Rise up like lions after slumber. In unvanquishable number, 
Shake your chains to earth like dew, which in your sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, and they are few. And I think that that uh, says a lot right there. So everybody, we're a little bit out of time here. We're going to finish things off with Leek. The song is called Leave for Good. And uh, I think it's apropos. And I'd also uh, like to remind everyone that Graham Hancock will be on the program next week. And it's going to be another interesting program as well. So check out Michael Tsarion at www.terrascopes.com. Always check me out at www.mikehagan.com. And uh, we'll continue as we do every week. Thanks again to Michael Tsarion. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>